When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 1980s, what a time to be alive because we got some of the best movies ever in the horror genre. Science fiction, we had some huge iconic franchises dropping as well. And there's so many to talk about. Let's go through the 80 best movies from the 1980s. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. James is back in LA. I'm back in the studio. We're finally recording for the first time in a month. Even though we had everything pre-recorded. That yes, was all yes, done yes, in, yes. in December. You haven't been here in the studio in over a month. How's it feel to be back? Gotta say, it feels feels good to have be back on my throne. <laughs> the king is <laughs> the back, king everybody. Is back. And I can't wait to get to work on this one. Uh, the 1980s was the, a definitive era for Hollywood. This is when franchises really became huge. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, a bunch of other great franchises really changing the landscape of Hollywood leading into the 90s and to the current era that we know of Hollywood. The 1980s was really that time where franchises took off, as well as this is really the birth of the super masculine action genre. Stallone and Schwarzenegger, they blew up at this time. And on top of that, there's some great foreign films and great, just critically adorned, acclaimed films that we're going to talk about. We made a list of our... 80 favorites, and we're going to start from 80 to 1. I really love our picks. Should we go 80 to 1 or 180? 80 to 1. 80 to 1. You're yeah. going to have to stay tuned for the end. Yeah, absolutely. The best. We don't want to spoil it. It's true. And also, the 80s brought us, I feel like, a new era of science fiction. Yes. Because, obviously, Alien came out in 1979, but in the 1980s, we had a massive boom of more science fiction films, kind of this new scope of cinema of, of film at the time. And in addition to that, horror was on fire in the 1980s. Some oh, yeah. of the best horror movies ever, ever came out this decade. So I love 80s movies. I love 80s culture. I got to say the biggest actor in the 80s is, has to be Harrison Ford. He's up, yeah, With probably. Star Wars and Indiana Jones, yeah. Harrison Ford was the biggest actor in the world in the 80s. Him and, him and Schwarzenegger. But Harrison... Schwarzenegger really took off in the 90s yeah. in a big way. But so... yeah, I agree. Still, I mean, um, Harrison Ford, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's been a minute, you know. The jet lag's still on. Getting back into the swing of things. <laughs> yeah, I thought you had a stroke for a second. <laughs> I did too. I might have. I might have. <laughs> but yeah, Harrison Ford, you're right. With with Star Wars and then Indiana Jones in the in the 1980s, the biggest star, one of the biggest movie stars in the history of cinema. He also got his sole Oscar nomination in the 80s with Witness. Oh, that's right. Yeah, his only Oscar nom. It's a good movie. For acting. It's great. It's on this list. The first time I witnessed it, I was like, <laughs> wow. What a film. Shut up. What a picture. What a picture. Good picture. Good picture. It's good to, good to be back. It's good to be it's back. It's a good picture. Andy's already annoyed with me, I can tell. <laughs> I was annoyed with you when I picked you up from the air- airport. Were you really? That's that's fucked up, man. That's How could you say such a thing? I brighten your life up and you know it. Look at that smile. No one puts a smile on your face like I do. I am the light in your life. I was smiling because we had a dog in the car, too. Yeah, that's true. Not you. I saw your car. I was like, it's Anthony. <laughs> I like ran over. I was so excited to see you. Yeah, but you, I guess you it skipped. Was not, you skipped. <laughs> I guess it was not reciprocated. It's just fake nice. We also had a lot of, like, teen comedies were massive in the 80s as well. High school comedies. High school comedies were huge. Some of our favorites of all time came out in the 80s. And some teen comedies it, that really defined the genre still to this day came out in the 80s. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Oh, yeah. And some great war films as well that we'll get to. Oh my god, there's so many. But I mean, horror 
horror was strong in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, coming off the 70s as well, but the 80s were Man. popping. Popping. Would you like to get into our list with the first one? Let's do it. How about, I know you love this movie, so oh, yeah. you might as well talk about it, Anthony. At number 80 on the 80 best movies of the 1980s, we have Christian Bale's breakout film, his debut in Empire of the Sun, which is one of the most underappreciated Steven Spielberg films of all time. Uh, it's a really wonderful film, beautiful cinematography, an amazing score, epic in scope. I think it's close to three hours in length. Uh, John Malkovich is a great supporting actor in this role. It's a tragic tale. It's funny. It's exciting. There's really nothing like it. We've seen the POW war camp story so many times, but to see it from the perspective of a child, really fascinating and interesting. But ultimately, the whole film hinders on the remarkable natural talent of Christian Bale. We all know him as one of the greatest actors of all time, and you see him as a 12-year-old in this film, and it's just hard to imagine to someone, someone having that much raw talent. And there's some incredible shots. One of my favorite shots of the film is real jets flying overhead, like right over Christian Bale when he's on that catwalk screaming. Just really in sensational filmmaking and absolutely an underrated Jennifer the Spielberg filmography. Did you say a Jennifer Spielberg filmography? What did you just say? An underrated gem for the Spielberg filmography. Gotcha. You mumbled seven words together. I did not understand the thing you said, but thank you for clarifying that. Because I know, <laughs> I'm sure the listeners are like, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> Who's Jennifer Spielberg? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, moving on to number 79. On our list, we have our first horror movie, An American Werewolf in London, which could be the best werewolf movie oh, yeah. ever. It's up there. I mean, the genre itself, there are plenty of werewolf movies, but most of them are mediocre at best. It's rare to get an excellent just solo werewolf film. Well, it's a good point. Every werewolf movie that gets made, it, it you will compare it to American Werewolf in London. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of them are, uh, are mixed in with vampires or other mythological yes. beasts or creatures. So it's great to get a solo werewolf movie that's excellent, and the sequel to this is terrible, but the uh, the original American Werewolf in London is so good. Don't watch out. American Werewolf in Paris. It's so bad. Yeah. This one came out in 1981, wow. directed by John Landis, who's also on this list for another movie coming up pretty soon. But it's an awesome movie. Great horror. Great prosthetics for the werewolf design. And I think it's just awesome. Just tourists in another country turning that into a horror movie. It's always a great time. I remember seeing this as a kid and just being like terrified of it. And as great as it, the practical effects are in this film, the sequel went all CGI for some reason. Yeah. Uh, Julie Delpy's in the sequel as well. Is she really? Yeah, she's the girl that the guy um, courts. But American Werewolf in London is phenomenal. Uh, it's got probably the best werewolf transformation. It's really grisly. It's very bloody and gory in all the right ways. It, it, just, it just hits all the right beats of like a monster movie that you want. And it had that camp quality like yeah. a lot of 80s horror movies had where there's some comedy as well, but also... Speaking to like a dead friend, like remember, yeah. remember the movie Idle Hands? That yeah, was of course. Like, I don't know with what, Jessica you, Alba. I don't know if that was an '80s movie, but I think that was, it was '90s. 90s. But sort of just like speaking to a dead friend. Mm -hmm. I, I like that trope. Yeah, they copied it in the Mummy. Yeah, they the Tom Cruise Mummy movie. They basically took that idea from this film mm -hmm. of the of the dead friend. Yeah. Right, and he's all his face is all torn up. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next up we have the first Harrison Ford movie on this list. There's quite. I think Harrison Ford might be the most popular actor on our list because, like we said, he's the biggest star in the 80s. However, it's not for a film you think. It's called Witness, uh, which is a really fantastic drama. It was nominated for Best Picture. Harrison Ford received a nomination for Best Lead Actor. He's really fantastic in it. And he, he plays a, a man who is protecting the young boy of, of a young boy, an Amish boy, who witnessed a murder in the city. And so he goes to the Amish community to, to protect the boy and his family. It's a really great crime film. Very different and unique in the genre. 
And it, it's an interesting look behind the curtain of the Amish lifestyle. And he's like a fish out of water in the Amish world. He's getting used to it. And so I really like that twist on it to see the Amish community uh, portrayed in film, which is pretty rare even to this day. Um, but it's also just a really tight, uh, gritty uh, crime thriller with a great ending. And next up we have a film that was made off an SNL sketch. We have the Blues Brothers with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. This is an iconic comedy. It's pretty silly and serious at the same time. And it's a great tone of humor and really excellent filmmaking. But this is just a fan favorite. This is an all-timer in the 1980s. People often, you'll see it on lists of the best comedies of all time. And I think Blues Brothers deserves to be there, especially Dan Aykroyd obviously was such a huge star. Yeah. But John Belushi coming out of nowhere on SNL and just being one of the funniest actors ever on screen for how short his career was and, and passing away at such an early age. Almost the same kind of level as Chris Farley was where just enigmatic on screen and just so charismatic and hysterical and just had some sort of a, a, a style comedy that no one else could do. The, the, a lot of great comedians have their own style. Chris Farley was like that as well. But John Belushi, he had his own style that no one else could do. And he just connected with audiences so well with his humor. And I think he's just one of the funniest people to ever act and be in TV and in film in general. But it's such a great movie. Yeah, I remember the first thing I ever saw him in was Animal House. Yeah. And he, the antics he would do, the improvisational humor he came up with. Uh, most, I think the, one of my favorite things he ever did was smushing the food out of his mouth at the lunchroom. What am I? A zit. A zit. Get it? <laughs> I mean, he was just a comedic genius. And also the Blues Brothers has like, one of the biggest car wrecks in film history. Yeah. Like the pileup of police cruisers, just, just so many. It's, it, I think it still holds a record for number of cars. It's a cool movie. Yeah. It's got a cool look. The costumes, the, the suits and the hats and the sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the Blues Brothers. Everybody. Everybody. All right. At number 76, we have Bob Zemeckis' film, Who Framed Roger Mad Robert Rat? <laughs> oh, my God. Whoa. He had, a, <laughs> he had a stroke this time. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And, I mean, to this day, from the very early beginnings of his career, Robert Zemeckis had been playing around with animation. And this was the first big undertaking he had of putting animation with live action. Bob Hoskins is really fantastic. He's perfect as the, as the lead role. And it's really interesting. This was so groundbreaking of really the first huge way that green screen was ever used in a major Hollywood production. Uh, Bob Hoskins shot a lot of this in front of just green screens, and that was pretty unheard of back then. Now it's the norm in a lot of ways, but it, it was really great. I remember being a kid watching this and and seeing the blending of the animation with the live action and films. Uh, I think a couple other more famous films like Space Jam carried out the same kind of idea, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit did it way better. And it's because Zemeckis is such a great director. And I love Bob Hoskins. He's he's like that like tough guy Brit who, like, he's got that great gravelly voice. Uh, he often plays villainous characters, but in this, he's he's the protagonist, which I really like. And I love the the blend of film noir. Uh, Jessica Rabbit is, like, one of the most iconic animated characters of all time. It's just so incredible. Uh, a really fun movie for the entire family, I think. Next up, we have another mystery film, another investigation. We have... Beverly Hills Cop and Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy, was an iconic character of the 1980s. And, of course, they're rebooting <laughs> again to, was it Hulu? 
is remaking a they're making a new Beverly it's Hills Netflix. movie. It's Netflix. Netflix, yeah. It's called Beverly Hills Cop Axel F, which is maybe the worst title <laughs> of the year. <laughs> Axel, Axel F. F. Axel F. Just call it Axel Foley. Anyone under it, the age of 30 is like, what the fuck is this? Just call it Beverly Hills Cop 5. Yeah. But Beverly Hills Cop is legendary. He plays a street smart cop in Detroit who gets involved in an investigation all the way over in Beverly Hills. It's a sort of fish out of water story. Not the first fish out of water story that Eddie Murphy made in the 1980s either. But, you know, this is a hysterical. It's great. And he was a star in the 80s. He was massive. He was one of the biggest actors. Yeah, 80s and 90s. Absolutely, for sure. On top of the world. Biggest comedian for that entire decade. Fish probably. out of water. He did a, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Trading places. He, yeah, trading yeah. places. Yeah, he did it a bunch of times. Fish out of water. It was like a brand of his in a way. It was sort of like Adam Sandler's man baby. <laughs> Eddie Murphy was just fish out of water. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> All right, next up. I never realized that. It's so true. Next up, we have a John Hughes film at number 74, The Breakfast Club. Everybody loves The Breakfast Club. It's iconic. It is one of the most uh, memorable and revered teen comedies of all time. It's a really brilliant concept for a high school film. Uh, one, It's not quite one location, but it basically is a one location film, which I'm always a big fan of. It's pulled off well. It's so much fun, and it oftentimes can feel uh, pretty close to a play if it's one location. And the characters are iconic, uh, the costuming. like these. This is just like such a revered film. John Hughes is, I wouldn't say his best. I think there's another movie that is better on this list. On this list. You'll get, we'll get to it. I think you guys might know what we're talking about, but Breakfast Club is a close second behind it, and it's just a wonderful movie. Yeah, and the characters are iconic, the, the outfits. I love, I love the Breakfast Club. Yeah. so good. Next up at number 73 on our list of the 80 best movies from the 1980s. We, we couldn't have, put it at 84. Yeah, we could, <laughs> otherwise we would have. We have 1984, which came out in 1984, an adaptation of the George Orwell novel. And this movie's excellent. Me and Anthony watched it for the first time last year. And yes. we, we didn't know uh, we didn't know that Roger Deakins had shot it. It was his first film. His first movie. It was a TV release too, right? It wasn't, I don't think it was a theatrical release. I believe it was a TV release in the UK, but uh, theatrical in America. But a huge America. production yeah. nonetheless because TV movies were, I think, a lot more uh, – a lot bigger in the 80s, more respectable. Well, I mean England's always been big on TV movies For to sure. this day. With the BBC yeah. and everything. And 1984, if you've ever read the book, which is one of the best books ever written in the last 50 years and insanely eerie and still relevant today, the book, the movie's excellent for an adaptation. It's got obviously massive scope of ideas. It's a totalitarian future where there's just this massive government control over the entire society in Great Britain. And I think the movie does a really great job in trying to film and, and show the massive ideas in the book. The book is... It's huge. You know, how do you show an entire city, an entire country taken over by a totalitarian, totalitarian, totalitarian You're regime? You're doing great, man. I am not. <laughs> I'm going to cut this whole thing but out. They do a good job, even though they don't do everything perfectly like the book. It's yeah. tough to do that, but I think they do an insanely effective job. If you've ever read the book, cannot recommend the movie enough. It is so awesome. And again, you'll be looking over your shoulder in today's contemporary world after either reading the book or watching the movie. It's hard to believe that it was Roger Deakins' first film because it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It it's so gorgeous in the the photos he captured and the images and the cinematography, the lighting. Like it's, I'm shocked it was his first feature film that that showed just his immense talent and immeasurable um, quality he brought to any film in any production. And this is a, the, the the first example of that. And I mean, I loved the novel, but then watching the film, I was just so blown away by the striking imagery. It's a hard book to adapt and. Uh, they really pulled it off. And uh, John Hurt is the lead. Yes. 
And that's why they cast him in V for Vendetta. Exactly. Next up, I guess you could say that V for Vendetta is a contemporary version oh, of yeah. 1984. Yeah, in absolutely. A lot of ways. Absolutely. With a superhero. So, yeah, it's a superhero of 1984. That's what I always I always, always looked at as an Orwellian. Um, yeah, if you like 1984, you would really like yeah. 1984. I mean, if you like V for Vendetta, you'll like 1984. 100%. A little less knives, though. <laughs> <laughs> what are you are you what are you without your knives and your fancy karate karate <laughs> we have bullets all right next up at number 72 we have a brian de palma horror film dressed to kill which is a fantastic uh pulpy uh 80s glam horror film i would classify it way to describe it it's sexy it's suave it's Super cool. The camera works fantastic. The score is wonderful. Uh, Michael Caine is absolutely astounding in this role. You've never seen him like this. It's a really great slasher film. And in my opinion, it's one of the best best slasher films. Like I would put this right up there with Scream, in my opinion. Dressed to Kill is right up there. It feels very Hitchcockian, too, as well. Yeah, I mean, De Palma always used like classical filmmaking techniques. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was a u- huge user of split screen. And there's a lot of that in this film. Uh, but I, I love, I love, love, love this movie. It's so fun, and there's really nothing like it. It's, it's, it's so like dreamlike too. The film. Um, but if you haven't seen Dress to Kill, add it to your watch list. It's fantastic. If you like twists, yes, it has an incredible twist yeah. ending. Yeah, it is awesome. It's probably, yeah, it's probably the best slasher you haven't seen. It's very sexy too. <laughs> it's very sexy. Next up, we have a childhood favorite of ours. It was released in 1984. Should also. we sing it? The, the never-ending story. An iconic fantasy film back from the 1980s that we loved. We wore the D- the VHS out on this thing like crazy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the characters are incredible. The story is incredible. It's so fantastical. You know, diving into this. This boy dives into this fantastical fantasy world on this adventure. <laughs> what? Fantastical fantasy. <laughs> you got you to mix up your adjectives, man. This wondrous <laughs> fantasy world. There we go. There you we like go. That, now you like, sound smart. Thanks, man. <laughs> this wondrous fantasy world filled with all kinds of creatures, horrors, beauty, and it's just this incredible adventure that he's on. And, you know, if I ever have a dog, I might name it Falcor because Falcor is just one of the best dogs, yeah. dogs in cinema. <laughs> Falcor's great. If you great. consider him a dog. But Atreyu is such a badass for a name and a character. You just connect with him so much. But I, I really love NeverEnding Story. And and I miss the fantasy movies of the 1980s and just the practical filmmaking as well as the blend of – they're not cheesy special effects. They fit the era yes. and work really well. They're not incredible like special effects. Like that stone giant doesn't look great, but yeah. when we were kids, it looked great. Yeah. But, you know, this also has a lot of tragic scenes as well. And, you know, oh, my God. I the love swamp. It, the horse. <sighs> but I, I, I love The NeverEnding Story, man. I, I mean, I don't think it's gotten much recognition. It has. It hasn't – I was surprised. It's it's not translating generationally, because a lot of young people I've spoken to have never heard of it. I think they just don't know about it. That's what I'm saying. That's like it's, it's a movie that isn't really tra- traversing generations, unfortunately, but it deserves to because it's. I think like it's a perfect fantasy movie for kids. Yeah. It's like the Lord of the Rings of kids for kids. It's shocking that it's never been rebooted yet. Yeah, I mean, that'd be a great movie. Like, it could look sick, man. It would be great unless Amazon made it. <laughs> Amazon will definitely make it. Um, but yeah, never ending story. Childhood classic of ours, and it was absolutely one of our favorite movies as kids. Yes, sir. Next up, we have Jackie Chan in Police Story at number 70. This is one of the most insane action movies of all time. It's a pretty straightforward story, but what Jackie did in this movie was really showcase his talents, not just with his 
incredible stunt work, but his comedy. This movie's really funny, and they they tap into that talent of his, where especially when he's he's he spends the first half of this movie trying to trying to sleep with a, a woman, <laughs> and he just keeps failing and blundering it, and it's so funny. And he what was great about him is he's all he's the hero, but he's also the butt of the joke most of the time. Yeah, and it works. And on top of that, they it's not just incredible stunt work. It's funny stunt work too. He had this really incredible knack for making the stunt work impressive, but also fun. He's Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, Charlie Chaplin, and he had that goofy tone to him with all of the sequences. But there's just a couple of really memorable sequences, and, and Michael Bay kind of ripped it off where he drove those the, the Hummers through that hillside village. You know, remember? And I think Transformers One or something. Mm-hmm. They did the police story. Like, they're driving cars through all these, like, apartments and stuff. And just the wreckage and the carnage is unbelievable. And I would say the most impressive stunt has got to be Jackie on the bus, jumping on bu- on the bus, hanging on the bus. Yeah. Insane stuff. I was just really blown away. I saw this on Criterion Channel. I think it's still on Criterion if you want to watch it. Uh, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal action movie. Next up at number 69, we have... Oh, man. The Seventh Continent. We had to put a Michael Haneke movie on here. And if you know anything about Michael Haneke movies, they are disturbing as hell. And this is, I won't spoil really what it's about, but it follows this family who's about to take this trip to Australia. Mm -hmm. And Haneke does a great job lulling the audience into a false sense of security. And then he just rips your heart out and just leaves you shocked with your jaw on the floor for about a half hour for the Mm -hmm. entire third act of this film. It's a shocking movie. It's jarring. It comes out of left field what really happens and what it's about. But my goodness, it is so damn good. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. People are saying like Saltburn's like on the like the most disturbing movie ever. It's like y- y'all haven't seen a Henneke movie. Yeah, any Henneke movie. <laughs> and this is And I'm not just talking about funny games. Funny yeah. games is the most common one. But... Yeah, but this is one of this was his earliest big hit, the Seventh Continent. And my God, it's a movie that when you just think about it, you're like, oh, it just disturbs you just thinking about it. But it's so powerful. He exp- Michael Haneke has always explored the some of the darkest aspects of humanity. And I'm not talking like serial killers. I'm talking about like uh, when it doesn't involve anything like that, like gruesome murders. We're talking about like the other dark aspects to us. And like what happens if someone's life goes wrong or there's something built up inside somebody for so long and they finally act on it? Yes, like an exactly. urge. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. But you've never seen a movie like The Seventh Continent, and it is without a doubt one of the most shocking twists I have ever seen. I would put it in top five movie twists of all time. Lots of food in it, too. There's a lot of food. Lots of like eating. watching food get eaten. Like this is the movie. <laughs> but you might lose your appetite after. <laughs> Next up at number 68, we have a vampire film from. Great director, Catherine Bigelow. Near Dark, which is a really fun action vampire movie. Nothing quite like it in the genre. It's sexy. It's cool. It's gritty. It's got that 80s style to it. The film, it just feels like it's got mud on it. Yeah, it's 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 dirty. mud and blood on it. It's dirty. And my God, the cast is great. I love the concept. So in in the world she created, a vampire can be turned back into a human with a blood transfusion, which is a really fun concept to think about. And it is, I, I really like that. You haven't really seen that in many others. I think only a handful of others. Um, but the cast is phenomenal. The story is really cool. Great shootouts, great violence, great gore. And it's not, it's not like, it's unlike any other vampire movie, really. It's so much different. And it's got like this punk rock feeling to it. 
and Bill Paxton steals every scene he's in. It's one of his best roles like he ever. Does. He's, he's freaking awesome in yeah. it. All right, moving on to just an all-time classic um, you know, from this franchise that Anthony and I have always loved, and I know a lot of you love. Back in 1985, wow. the great film written and directed by and starring Sylvester Stallone came out. Rocky IV. Holy crap, what a film. It's so good. Apollo Creed gets killed in the opening of this movie, which is not a spoiler. It's in the trailer. It's in the synopsis, so you know what? Go screw yourself. <laughs> came out in 1985. Go screw yourself. <laughs> and... <laughs> He's killed by this Russian massive machine <laughs> of a human being, Drago. Drago. And Rocky makes his life quest to now go and fight Drago in Russia in the biggest boxing match in the history of mankind. And my God, it's so pulpy. It's it's so masculine. It's so 80s. There's so much sweat in it. The music is awesome. The music is amazing. The synth. The workout, oh my God. The workout uh, sequences are, are unforgettable. Yeah. Training in the snow. Oh my it's god! Great. And the beard—he's got a beard in this one. Sly is great. He is so shredded in this movie. Like his physique in this movie is absurd. It's crazy. It's unhealthy. I physique. can't believe he directed this at, in stayed in that kind of shape. Well, it, it, he was so lean; it was unhealthy lean because he had like two percent body fat. He was doing handstands in between takes and the boxing sequences because he was lightheaded constantly because he's dehydrated as hell yeah. and starving. But man, it, but my guy, he looks, he looks good. Great. He looks great. <laughs> <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do, you know. And making movies ain't easy. I know it sounds cheesy if you haven't seen it. It's good. It's a lot of fun, and it's just a great. It's it's a great boxing movie. It's just fantastic. And my God, it's what's always been great about Rocky. Creed hasn't been able to quite pull it off the same way of making him feel like an underdog. Yeah, I agree with that. Because like, cause Michael B. Jordan's huge, and he's an amazing athlete. Rocky's, even even though he's, like you were saying, he's shredded, they put him up against Mr. T. They put him up against Apollo Creed, put him up against Drago, and he's just tiny compared to those guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, because Sly's not the tallest guy in the world, so he's always felt like... It's a nice way to say someone's short or yeah. medium height. <laughs> he's, he's, he's medium height. It's always felt like every opponent of his is someone that it's impossible for him to take down. And they do a great job in this franchise of building up the villain so much that they seem unbeatable. It's every Rocky movie is sort of a David versus Goliath. Yes, exactly. I think that's why they work so well. I like the Creed movies a lot. I yes. really enjoyed Creed three. I yeah. really did. But I absolutely agree with you that uh, uh, Creed nowadays Adonis never truly feels quite like the underdog yeah. anymore. Some uh, somewhat they set it up enough. But it doesn't feel like the not Rocky quite ones. like the Rocky movies. That's why the payoffs yeah. are so big when yeah. he wins. Like Apollo Creed seemed like. There's no way Rocky would ever beat this guy, even mm. in the second one. It was because he, he's still because he's still. It, they it's did Apollo a, Creed. Yeah, Apollo Creed, best like, boxer look at, ever. Look at that fucking guy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a man. And then Mr. T is like this fucking beast, and then Dolph is just a, a tank, and it's just like they do. That's what's the strength of the franchise. Obviously, they they lost that with Rocky Five, and Rocky Balboa kind of got that back when he was going up against like a, a boxer in his prime as a, in his guy in his fifties. Um, so that's Rocky Balboa actually also worked in that regard. Mm -hmm. But Rocky Five, no. Yeah, I agree. And R.I.P. Carl Weathers, just yeah. an icon from our childhood. He's in multiple movies on this list, and yeah. it's just sad to see him pass, especially because he's been getting great work for the last few years. You know, working on The Mandalorian and other, and other projects, mm -hmm. but a legend nonetheless. So R.I.P. Carl Weathers. All Moving right, on, you're next, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're next. We got another Brian De Palma film. At number sixty-five, we have. John Travolta in Blowout. For anyone who loves filmmaking and movies about filmmaking, 
add this to your watch list if you haven't seen it. It's about a sound designer and a sound recorder and sound mixer. So it's a murder mystery. So John Travolta plays a sound mixer who accidentally records an assassination. And then he's trying to prove he's trying to prove his theory with by trying to figure out discover evidence and not get killed in the process. It's a really fun, tight mystery thriller. The filmmaking is just fabulous, but some of my favorite sequences are watching John Travolta splice together film, sync up audio with film. It's just it's just put in that love of filmmaking in a horror movie, a horror mystery movie in such a brilliant way. And he's he's phenomenal in this role. This is like one of Travolta's best performances without a doubt. It's got an unbelievable climax in John Lithgow as I think an all-time movie villain. Travolta was a fucking stud. Yeah, he was. He is a stud in this movie. Yeah. The hair, everything, the face, the jawline. He's excellent in this film, too. And and when it comes to movies about filmmaking, this isn't a movie about filmmaking, but like you said, the process of, of filmmaking and editing in this movie is so mm-hmm. hypnotic, and it's really terrific, and they do such a good job. But I freaking love this movie. You told me about it. Was it last year that I watched yeah. it? Freaking loved it, man. <laughs> so it was good. so good. I have a poster of it. Yeah, this movie still just pops in my head once in a while. It's great, man. It has a great fireworks scene too. Oh as my! Well. It's one of the, it's all time movie shot. Yeah. All time. It's a really great. Yeah, yeah. A, a great ending, great twist, and just a great kind of t- racing against the clock sort of ending. It's an excellent film that infuses paranoia. It's the best like paranoid film I've seen. I had seen since the conversation. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I feel like the Safties have really well. They're more of an anxiety film. Yeah, not paranoia, anxiety for sure. Yeah. Let's move on to number 65 on our list of the 80 best movies from 1980s. We have our first James Cameron movie, and it's not going to be the last. The Abyss, which came out all the way back in 1989. Wow. And this is a great original sci-fi film starring Ed Harris, where this diving team goes and starts to investigate a nuclear sub or nuclear yeah, submarine in the bottom of the ocean. But they encounter a submarine, submarine Mr. Wayne. Mr. Wayne. They encounter an aquatic alien species down there. And so James Cameron really blew up in the 1980s, obviously because of a couple of movies in addition to this on this list in the 1980s. But this is one of his most underrated, I would say. It's still really great. And we all know Jim Cameron's so obsessed with the aquatic and the ocean. And he's you know pioneered a lot of discovery techniques and technology and submarines himself. And this was, I'm sure, this is the start of that. And just filming underwater is just such a complex thing. But he really probably is the best ever to be a film in terms of making films underwater. He's got to be the best all time. He's like, which is a, a kind yeah. of a unique thing to say. It's a unique category. He's the only filmmaker I can think of that he he's part filmmaker, part engineer, and part adventurer. Yeah, because he he he's actually helped, like you said, develop and engineer technology for things like this. So he is like a director engineer. At the same time. Do you know the story about Ed Harris almost drowning on this? No. Did he almost drown? Yeah. So there's a, there's a scene in the film where Ed Harris's character can uh, breathe in, in, in water. And water fills up his... his um, Gills? His helmet. <laughs> <laughs> he is gillyweed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I've killed Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, my God. I've killed Harry Potter. <laughs> so uh, in the scene, water fills up his helmet and he's able to breathe in the air in the in the water i won't don't tell you how uh, it's because the alien stuff alien <laughs> stuff but um so to get the shot they actually did it with real water in his tank Jesus. in his helmet and so but what happened was ed harris he he did the scene but then 
he wanted to cut. Jim Cameron wouldn't let him cut. He wanted to keep rolling, and Ed Harris was like trying to get out of the out of the tank, and Jim Cameron wouldn't let him get out of the tank, and he nearly drowned. He actually uh, passed out uh, from the water, and he had to be resuscitated uh, back to life because Jim Cameron wouldn't let him, let him leave the water, even though there, he was water in his helmet. He ended up obviously surviving, but he uh, he never he said he. I don't think he did any press for the film. I think he refused to talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. And still to this day, if people ask him about the, the Abyss, he refuses to talk about the Abyss or James Cameron. Jeez. Yeah. I bet you after that, James Cameron's like, all right, let's do another take. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something he would do. Yeah. <laughs> Get up, Ed. Get up. Why is Ed moving? <laughs> but, yeah, he almost died. <laughs> all right, next up at number 64, we have the first Tim Burton movie on this list, Beetlejuice. Uh, Beetlejuice, uh, we all know, is an iconic film. Michael Keaton is a big breakout, and they followed it up with Batman not not too long after. Beetlejuice is one of a kind. Unbelievable score from Danny Elfman. Really remarkable, gothic, surrealist filmmaking, production design, set design, cinematography. It's, it's, it's in a league of its own. It's so bizarre. Uh, it's got, I mean, it even has a like, great musical track, uh, musical number in the middle of it. Uh, there's so much to it. Uh, Winona Ryder in breaking out in a big way with this role. I'm looking forward to the sequel. I kind heard of a little hes- hesitation in your voice there. I mean, Tim Burton's track record the last 10 years been yeah. a little iffy. Yeah. Still Tim Burton, iffy. though. I still. Do you know about the title, though? What's it called? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. That's cool. Yeah, clever, right? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Yeah. I like it. Clever. But yeah, Beetlejuice is great. Beetlejuice is great. great. Let's move on to number... 63 on our list, we have our first Stephen King adaptation, right? First one. We do. Stand By no, Me. No, Rocky Four is a Stephen King adaptation. Stand By Me, <laughs> based on the novella The Body. The Body. Do you remember what a novella is? It's a short novel. Yeah, there you go. There you go, guy. It's about under under 50,000 words, I guess. <laughs> um, this was directed by Rob Reiner, and it, I believe it was Becca that we did a, a private watch party with because yes. she requested to watch this, and she's a chosen one patron. And... This is a childhood favor of mine. You know, everyone watches when we were kids growing up. There was like one of those movies that at some point you get through. And it's about these young friends. Well, it's really about a writer who's recounting his memories of his past and the friendships he had when he was young, specifically this one this one summer. Glory days, man. The glory days, yeah. And him and his friends, they go on a little adventure to find the rumor of a dead body that got hit by a train that they're trying to find. Not hit by a train, just a dead body. They almost get hit by trains. <laughs> And it's a great coming-of-age film. Excellent acting. We have a young River Phoenix in this film. and it, Richard Dreyfus is the narrator. Yeah, Richard Dreyfus yeah. is the narrator, the author. He plays yeah. the, the older version of the, of the young boy. It's just an excellent story and an excellent movie. It's really, really well made and just makes you feel like a kid again. And it, it tackles tough themes, though. You know, it's not just a, 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 a fun, easy coming-of-age film you know they talk about dark things as well as not just the dead body but what the kids are going through in their personal lives they all have tough situations at home or one of them specifically and it's just about them coming together and, and just working together in terms of trying to stay friends but the writer remembers you know I, I he says that great line i never had friendships like i did when i was 12 years old or something like that Kiefer sutherland is a great villain in this movie oh, yeah the older brother he's fantastic in this movie yeah he is so good with the knife switchblade man I love I love Stand By Me. It's a movie that feels like you're reading a novel when you watch it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Has that. It has that, that feeling. 
it's just like maybe it's the narration it's timeless yeah the narration yeah, yeah. a lot of voiceover so timeless all right next up at number 62 we have a first star wars film we have star wars episode six return of the jedi heck yeah fantastic fantastic conclusion to the original trilogy i adore the ending of this film i do think it's the weakest of the three but it's still awesome you know, it's, it's not that big of a slight. We, it's just an amazing movie, and it really, it's to me, it's the third act is what makes the movie so special. Um, the conclusion, Luke versus Vader, the Emperor, my God, it's just really fantastic, and also one of the most exciting action sequences of all time, I think, in the forest. That was just visually incredible that they pulled off with the steady cam with the speeders. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. The steady, like not steady cam. The frame, the, just playing with the frame rate. Yeah, frame rate. They would just, I think they might have used a steady cam. They had a steady, they yeah. were using steady cam with a high frame yes, rate. Yes, yes. So they would walk through the forest with a steady cam and they would film it like one, like one frame a second, I think. And then they turn that into 24 frames per second. So it was sped up. And when it was sped up to 24 frames, it looked like it was, you were flying through the forest. And just fantastic filmmaking, among so many other things. But I, I really adore. I love the the opening with Luke being a, a master Jedi now, and then the ending is just phenomenal. It's a perfect ending for the trilogy. It, it's a freaking awesome movie. Yeah, it really is. Let's move on to number sixty one on our list. We have a John Hughes film, written and directed by, starring Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which has to be one of the best comedies of all time, let alone teen comedies or high school comedies. About Ferris, this high school kid who's just the coolest high schooler ever. Everybody loves Ferris. And Ferris is fake and sick. And on his day off, he decides to go on a great adventure and do lots of fun things. He convinces his best friend Cameron to get out of bed, who's sick at home for real, as well as getting his girlfriend Sloane out of high school, sneaking her out with a, a fake pass pretending to be her father. <laughs> the trench coat. Meanwhile, the principal is on to him and trying to figure out that Ferris is lying. He's really somewhere else. He's trying to track him down. And I freaking love Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's got some of the most memorable and iconic scenes ever. I mean, the the parade scene, it's one of the biggest moments in movie history. It's got to be. And I, I love I love the humor and the comedy in this movie. is excellent. It's just sharp writing. The wardrobe in this movie is amazing. Yeah, it's excellent. Even just the, all three the short, of them. The, the Red Wings jersey yeah. itself, just stuff like that. And then the leopard uh, print vest. Yeah. All the clothing in this film is iconic as fuck. Like, if you dressed up as any of the characters from Halloween, every, you everyone would know what movie yeah. you're re referencing. It's one of the most fun movies ever, I think. It's mm. just so entertaining, and it has transcended generations for sure. And it was a really a huge movie that broke the fourth wall. Yeah. That was still was. such a rarity back then. Mm-hmm. And Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris talking to the audience constantly. And especially the credit sequence of him telling everybody to leave. Get out. So it's over. That's it. It's over. There'd be no Deadpool in terms of the style if it wasn't for Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller, yeah, it was instrumental to that fourth wall uh, becoming popularized. Yeah, and I feel like Deadpool is the, really the only other movie that's used it to the extent of that in a movie and used in it comedy, so much. Uh, yeah. It pulled it off really well. Recently, like, Fleabag did it in TV. Okay, yeah. Scorsese has been doing it since the 90s, but Ferris But I mean, for like first. half the goddamn movie, he's talking to you. Yeah, it's it's really great. I think that's another reason why people connect to Ferris so much because he's constantly speaking to us. He's just so cool. Yeah. He's just so cool. I bet Deadpool and Wolverine will talk to the audience in in the new film, Deadpool 3. 
Huh. That'd be interesting. I bet Logan addresses us all the time, too. Maybe. They Maybe. think they should. We'll see. We'll find out. They're dropping the trailer this week, you know. That's right. I heard yeah. about that. Yeah. Interesting. Looking looking forward to it. I'm curious. Next up, at number 60, we have one of the most iconic comedies and science fiction films of all time. Dun, 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 dun. I ain't afraid of no ghost. Ghostbusters. <laughs> Who are you going to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is iconic. It's a perfect comedy. It really is a testament to the cast and Sigourney Weaver just being an absolute like queen of the screen. It's Ghostbusters is so much fun. And there's really nothing like it blending the comedy, the slapstick humor with sci-fi and horror really well. There's so, I remember being terrified of this movie as a kid, especially when like the gargoyle monster showed up. Yeah. It's horrified. And but it's really fun and it's it's great because it goes dark and it goes pretty horrific and it gets violent and it gets scary. And it contrasts with the humor so brilliantly. And just letting these amazing, talented comedians improvise, spitball, do what their strengths were, really made it special. There's been so many sequels now. A couple of them are good, but nothing's ever going to come close to the original Ghostbusters. It's one of a kind. Bill Murray, man. Yeah. Bill Murray in his prime. The man. The man. Speaking of the man, the next film on our list (laughs) is Manhunter. I like what you did there. Which is an awesome Michael Mann movie. <laughs> we got a double man right there. Three mans. It's a murder mystery investigation film starring William Peterson as well as Brian Cox as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah. Now, there's a movie that came out in the 2000s starring Edward Norton and Ray Fiennes called The Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. This is basically the same adaptation. Yeah. However, this one's better. This one's way better. I like Red Dragon. It's pretty damn good. But this one is awesome. Yeah. It's really, really great. And I think it's got a great casting as the main villain. That that super tall guy, Tom Noonan, yeah. who's also in the House of the Devil. He's in so many things. Yeah, he's just this guy. He's yeah. like seven foot two, and he's just got. This, he's a great actor. He's got this great look and quality to him that's just very eerie and creepy, and he mm-hmm. really plays so well in horror comedy, in horror movies, or as horror characters. And so, same kind of thing. Hannibal Lecter's in prison, and the investigator, uh, played by William Peterson, aka Grissom from CSI, the original Grissom. CSI. Is using or or getting aid from Hannibal Lecter in order to find a serial killer. Meanwhile, Hannibal's trying to break out. Exactly. It's such a good movie. It's sexy. You wouldn't expect a, a Hannibal movie to be sexy, but it is. Michael Mann, bro. And man, Michael Mann directs the hell out of it. I love this movie. It's so well made. It's so so fucking well made. I love Manhunter. It's great. Next up, we have another great director from the eighties. At number fifty-eight, David Cronenberg's The Fly. One of the best horror films of all time. Jeff Goldblum becoming a superstar with this role. It's grisly, scary, interesting, intelligent, funny. Um, Another uh, Gina Rollins, another role. She's all over the 80s in this list. Uh, But it's just one of my all-time favorite horror films. I actually gave it a 5 out of 5 on Letterboxd when I watched it um, late last year for, I think, the fourth time I've seen it. It's sensational. And in a way, it's a superhero movie, too. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically the fly man if you think about it. Um, but it's it's I just love things that explore science fiction in terms of trying Excuse a me. scientist trying to create something new or a new technology. And oftentimes it's done. It, it's rarely done in a way where the t- technology goes horribly wrong. And this is an instance where it goes horrifically wrong. 
Uh, but man, it's so goddamn good. And it, it all hinges on Jeff Goldblum being as charismatic and endlessly watchable on screen as he is in this film. Next up, we have a film directed by <sighs> Robert Redford. We have Ordinary People. It's about this family where there's an accidental death of a son, I believe. A son. Uh, yeah. There's two. They have two sons. The eldest son died drowning the summer before, and so now it's the aftermath of that. And it's tearing the family apart, basically. Yeah. They're trying yeah. to keep yeah. together, but it's really emotional. It's dramatic as hell. And Robert Redford is such an excellent director. You know, a lot of actors turn to directing eventually in their careers, and Robert Redford's easily one of the best to do it in terms of being an actor turned director. It's a really understated movie. It hasn't gotten any really real attention or traction in the past couple of decades, but uh, Timothy Dalton uh, was, I think he either won or was nominated for an Oscar. It was his debut film, and he went on to have a really great career. Donald Sutherland plays the father. Absolutely outstanding. This film was nominated for a bunch of uh, Oscars, but it's Robert Redford's made some really great movies as a director. This is his best one. He won Best Director for He it. won. Okay, yeah. thank you. It's really phenomenal. And it won Best Picture. It won Best Picture, yeah. That's how good it is. It's... And it won Best Screenplay. <laughs> what else did it win? Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Timothy Oh, Hutton. he won. Okay. Timothy Hutton. Okay. Sorry, Timothy Hutton. Sorry, yeah, I was like, not Timothy Dalton. Hutton. Yeah. Timothy Hutton. Um, it's a tragic film. But it's also a really interesting portrait at how people deal with grief differently. Um, for example... The mom of the family, she can't bear it anymore. The father's trying to keep everyone together. And then the son is guilt-stricken. And so it's a really great exploration of grief in its different forms. It's really emotionally emotionally charged film, but it's well worth a watch for a good cry. Man. <laughs> You're up next. Yeah, I was just thinking about that movie. All right, next up at number 56, I have a movie that I watched last night called The Right Stuff, which is, it's got to be one of the best space movies ever. I had never seen the film, but I was on my research for this episode. I came across it, and I was like, I know, I've heard of this film, but I've never seen it before. I've always wanted to. And it's about the, the early space program of NASA, which started in the 50s. So they started uh, t using test pilots to first launch into space, and then orbit the Earth. And this all led to the moon program, uh, moon landing program in the 60s. But the 50s laid the groundwork for that. And so it, it, the, the story is epic. It's three hours and 20 minutes long, but it flies by. Uh, Caleb Deschanel is the cinematographer. He's one of the most underrated DPs of all time. He's created incredible imagery in this film. Really, really fantastic. Uh, Philip Kaufman made this film. A lot of great iconic actors are in this. Sam Shepard leads the leads the cast. Dennis Quaid, in an early role of his, he plays like a hotshot pilot. But the whole story centers upon not just the NASA program of getting into space, but about the pilots who risked their lives testing. And hundreds and hundreds of pilots died yeah. in planes. First, they were trying to get the sound barrier. That was the first main task. And then once the sound barrier was beat, then it was like, let's go faster. Let's go faster than that. Let's go Mach 2. Let's go Mach 3. Let's go Mach 10. Low Earth orbit. Yeah, exactly. In space. And so engineers would come up with new plane designs, and then test pilots would be like, all right, let's test it out and see how fast it goes. And this all laid the groundwork for eventually they created the NASA program to, to contrast the Soviets and try and beat them in the space race. So there's a lot of elements to this film, uh, and it goes from – just test pilots to the fucking NASA program 
and it's just incredible, massive spectacle filmmaking. They captured a lot of footage of real rocket launches, and they blended that together with documentary footage as well as shooting the film with documentary style, like different aspect ratios, different film formats, and they blended in together with real news footage or real um, media footage, kind of like Ferris, uh, kind of like um, Forrest Gump, with the, not, but not with visual effects. They would just like duplicate the kinds of style of cinematography, and I was floored by it. The cast is amazing, and it's really so much great stunt work, so many great, so much great aerial photography, and I was just floored. It's a three-hour, twenty-minute movie, and I was, I was like, blown away the entire time. So one of the reasons why I love First Man so much is mm-hmm. the the first act of that movie. You know, it shows Neil Armstrong. It's about Neil Armstrong, yeah, but it's also about pre NASA and the development of NASA. Like the opening scene is not NASA. And the normality of funerals for engineers yes. and for pilots. That's the main theme in this and how movie. How often yeah. they would go to funerals. There's a couple lines where they talk about, oh, it's like basically another one every other, it seems like every other month someone's dying. So in First Man, you remember the scene of uh, that first Apollo, I think 11, where they blew up inside yeah. the hatch before yeah. they even launched? One of the characters in this film is a guy who was in that cockpit that oh blew up. Because it's all connected. Yeah. And a lot uh, some of the pilots, for example, that were in the, in the early days of the space program, were involved in the Apollo program later on. Um, but if you like First Man, watch the right stuff because Damien Chazelle drew a lot from it. You can tell with the cinematography and the approach to the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Really, really incredible film. All right, let's move on to another Sylvester Stallone yes. movie. First Blood. Hey, true First Blood. First Blood came out in 1982 starring John Rambo, played by Sylvester Stallone. Is it John Rambo? Yeah, he's yeah, John Rambo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're looking at me like because you said starring John Rambo, like he's a person featuring John Rambo, <laughs> played by Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> he's a soldier, a Green Beret, coming back from Vietnam War. He's just walking through a town. However, the sheriff won't let him pass because Vietnam vets were discriminated against immensely yeah. in America back then, and he tries to turn him around and get him out of town, but Rambo. Is sick of being treated like this, so he just keeps walking through, and it leads leads to an arrest as well as an eventual one one man war versus the local police, and eventually some military as well. And it's an epic film, great effects, great stunt work. Oh yeah, an insane bullet count, and Rambo became an icon in the 1980s because of it. I'll give you people a war you wouldn't believe. I just killed my throat with that. I'm sure he did. <laughs> um, I think Rambo, people who have, maybe if if people haven't seen the films. The very actiony sequels change, like they take away kind of from the power of the first film, which is really great. It has a lot of great themes of it. Yeah, it's very intense. I love First Blood. All right, next up we have Big, starring Tom Hanks. This is a great comedy about a young boy who somehow mysteriously transforms into an adult, and he uh, makes moves on a lady. He gets a job. <laughs> he gets a job at a toy company, and he learns how to grow up. Uh, it's a charming film, a uh, showcase for Tom Hanks' singular talents as an actor and performer. One-of-a-kind um, actor, honestly. He's really un- incredible. And this is this was one of his early huge breakouts, and uh, he got no- nominated for an Oscar for this film. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Next up, we have a Coen Brothers film. We have Raising Arizona. It came out in 1987. This was a big movie for them mm-hmm. because, you know, they came out blood simple in the early 1980s. But I think this one really put them on the map as being, you know, great filmmakers and writers and stars Nick Cage. It was a huge movie, and 
I think people still really adore it. You know, this movie still lived on in terms of I see costumes of these characters yeah. still going on, especially Nick Cage's character. It's it's hysterical. Uh, great writing, obviously, but excellent directing as well. Did Roger Deakins no. shoot this or no? He did not. Even he though not. it's still visually incredible, uh, there's a sequence of the baby crawling on the in the hallway, and they used really great lenses to showcase the perspective of a baby and like a, the the floor moving. It, it's really fantastic and dynamic filmmaking. But it was uh, pre Roger Deakins. Their first film together was Barton Fink. That's cool. Yeah, yeah that's right. Cool story, bro. Cool story, bro. Next up, we have another Rob Reiner film. In The Princess Bride. The guy never made the same movie twice. <laughs> and Princess Bride couldn't be a bigger contrast from Stand By Me and Misery, which bookended this film. And it's a fun comedy. It's uh, basically a spoof of the romantic period piece drama. Um, so many great lines. And the cast is fantastic. Carrie Elwes, uh, Robin Wright, in her debut, is amazing. Um, just fun tropes are played at. And it's, it's just a... a iconic film and there's really nothing quite like it it's 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 a uh, totally so hard to pull off but they did what they this kind of comedy mm-hmm. next up we have Hayao Miyazaki film the delightful my neighbor Totoro and this came out all the way in 1988 wow that's old. holy crap what an old film and I remember the first time I saw this movie I just really fell in love with it and especially the characters in Totoro and these two young girls who moved to the country to be near their mother who's ill and they just interact and go on adventures. And there's comedy, but also tragedy, like every Miyazaki film, pretty much. And the woodland critters, the the, the, the fantastical woodland cr- creatures. The cat bus. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I love the mites. I love it. And it's beautiful. It's stunning filmmaking. Great artistry, just like every Miyazaki it's film. It's beautiful, yeah. man. I watched it for the first time last month, and I was blown away by yeah, it. I've been it telling was... you to watch it for a while. You have. I, I, are you crying? No, I'm I'm trying not to burp. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a Coke Zero. Yeah, you have to I, I just had a Coke Zero before we started. Rookie mistake. Can't be having <laughs> bubbles before we're talking. I know, I know, but I just needed a little caffeine. But I loved, I loved it. And I mean, the the hand drawn and hand painted animation, the backgrounds, the the this is the nature in this. It's so green and beautiful to to behold. And mm-hmm. I'll take it over CGI animation any day, man. Well, bold statement. Bold as fuck. Another movie that's bold as fuck is Poltergeist. Oh, my God. One of my favorite horror movies at number 50. Iconic, iconic movie. It's super funny. It's graphic. It's visually stunning. It's ridiculous. It's insane. It's scary. It's exciting. It kind of has a a sci-fi feel to it, even though it's supernatural. Um, I adore the film. It's It's like in terms of a supernatural, it's not exactly a haunted house per se, it's not a ghost, it's a poltergeist. But I'll say, if in the haunted house genre, this is my favorite, probably my favorite one. Wow, I mean, it is one of the best haunted house movies of all time. Yeah, it's it's great. I really like it too. Let's move on to a David Lynch film. Oh man, we have <laughs> the Elephant Man. Came out in 1980, starring Anthony Hopkins and John Hurts, about this man who had a surgery go horribly wrong. And he's been working as a sideshow attraction basically at circuses, correct? Or Well, so I don't believe there was a surgery that went wrong, was it? I thought he was mistreated, and that's why— or... No, he's being mistreated. Oh, he's being mistreated. All right, that's what I it believe is. he was uh, deformed since the start. It's been a couple—like de- like a decade since I've seen this. So no, worry, I actually just watched it recently, okay, so cool. I can uh, take it from here. Yeah, I'm trying to remember it. Anthony Hopkins is, plays a doctor, and uh, at first he's fascinated by the man and actually puts him up on show at his school where he uh, is a professor. 
And then he grows to feel deeply for the man as he sees him being abused and used as a not so much a sideshow at a carnival, but there's a street hustler who who people pay to see him privately to just gawk at him. And it's like underground spectacle, not yeah, so yeah. much a carnival. And it's really about seeing the humanity in someone who people look at as a monster. It's I think in my opinion, it's one of the great tragedies of the history of film. John Hurt's performance is unbelievable. It's it's a movie that I sobbed multiple times at. And it's really David Lynch it's the only kind of movie like this in David Lynch's filmography. And in a lot of ways, he was the perfect director for the film. It's unbelievable, so tragic, but so beautiful at the same time. Moving on. Let's go with the best food movie of all time, in my Whoa. opinion. The best food movie at number 48, Tampopo. If you like ramen, you will like Tampopo. I kind of want ramen right now. I know. We should get ramen. You want to? Yeah, I'm down. Because you owe me a meal, you said. so. When do I owe you a meal? You said you were going to buy me a fancy dinner. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what you want for your fancy dinner? You I think ramen's fancy. Yeah, sure. Fancy enough for me. <laughs> but um, Tampo Po is about a woman who was a former housewife whose husband owned a ramen shop. He recently passed away, so she has the option of she can sell the ramen shop or she can run it. So she decides to run it, although she knows nothing about ramen or running a business. <laughs> and so she uh, accepts help from various men in the area who all have their own little niche expertises in re regards to either running a business, design, or cooking, and so they all join forces to help her, and they also are trying to get trade secrets from rivals uh, in the area, other rival ramen shops. So they're trying to learn how to make the perfect noodle, how to make the bright broth. Uh, it's just so so delightful, and it's it really is, in my opinion, if you love food, if you love food movies, this is one you have to watch. It's like a 4.4 on Letterboxd. It's so beloved. And I couldn't recommend it enough. It's utterly delightful. Utterly delicious. <laughs> Let's move on to another horror movie. The birth of one of the greatest slasher villains ever. Written and directed by Wes Craven. Coming out in 1984. Johnny Depp's first film. <laughs> A Nightmare on Elm Street following Freddy Krueger. Who haunts people's dreams and nightmares. And tortures and torments and kills young teens and is just an iconic horror villain. he's a weird dude he's a weird guy <laughs> he's a weird guy he's, he's got he's been through some shit he's burned down by the local parents in a house yes and he haunts the local kids now and it's just a great idea for a horror movie for a villain for a slasher this person who torments your dreams and nightmares and can kill you in your sleep and the movie's excellent because if you fall asleep you're dead it's just, a, I think, a genius movie, really. One of the most visually stunning horror films still to this day. Yeah. Still. They're doing some great stuff, and yeah. I, I think just Wes Craven's awesome. And I, I think A Nightmare on Elm Street is just a really special horror film. Oh, yeah. Big time. Next up at number 46, we have Kevin Costner's film Field of Dreams, one of the best baseball movies of all time about a man who starts hearing and interacting with the ghosts of baseball's past and decides to build his own baseball field in his farm. It's a beautiful movie, great cinematography, but also, you know, um, baseball in a lot of ways is like the sport of America. I, I look at it as, yeah, and it's America's pastime for yeah. a reason. And since the early 1900s, it, ha it has been the most dominant sport in the country. 
this is a beautiful love letter to it, especially to its history and its roots and the purity of the game. It's a wonderful film. I couldn't recommend it enough to any sports fans. This is, this is one of the best sports movies by far. 100%. Moving on next to another Best Picture winner. Oh, yeah. Also one Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Screenplay. And our first Tom Cruise movie. And our first, in Hans Zimmer's first film. Oh, my God. We have Rain Man, also stars Dustin Hoffman, directed by Barry Levinson, who won Best Director for this film. Rain Man's excellent, and Tom Cruise plays this L.A. kind of yuppie guy who <laughs> doesn't realize, and he has a brother he doesn't know of, who gets a large inheritance from their deceased father. And in order to try to get some of that inheritance, Tom Cruise, his character, goes and discovers and finds his brother and tries to do that. But they develop a beautiful relationship, and it's an awesome movie. It's funny and suspenseful, and Dustin Hoffman is terrific in Rain Man. I love it. I love Rain Man. It's so good. Next up, we have another horror film. At number 44, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. I have a wonderful Evil Dead poster up here. It might be the best movie poster in the history of cinema. Honestly, the Evil Dead movie poster, it could be the best poster of all time. It, it it's, could be. It's up there. It's brilliant. Just like how the film is brilliant. The shoestring budget, independent, tiny movie that you know took the horror genre by storm. Stephen King wrote a great piece about it when it came out, and that really helped blow it up. And The Evil Dead is still being made to this day. They just greenlit a new Evil Dead film that comes out next year. Evil Dead Rise made money. Yeah, so what Sam Raimi did was exceptional. The prosthetics, the visual effects, the special effects, the gore, the tone of it. It's so funny and scary at the same time. Utterly ridiculous. I adore the film, as you do and many of you listening to so you gotta put it on this list plus Bruce Campbell Bruce Campbell shook his hand two years ago oh yeah he called us influencers no he was told we were influencers yeah he was told we were influencers yeah and he goes oh influencers huh yeah I was like oh man <laughs> now he disrespects us but it's funny the guy before us called him Papa cause that's like his nickname on the show he's on mm-hmm. and he's like it's an honor Papa <laughs> I was like Papa <laughs> like a grown man called Papa. him Papa <laughs> that's funny next up we have Glory, oh, yeah. which Denzel Washington won his first Oscar for for Best Supporting Actor, also stars Morgan Freeman. That one tier. And Matthew Broderick, directed by the legendary Edward Zwick. Excellent, excellent film. Dude maker. makes Glory and The Last Samurai. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's a, it's a Civil War film about the Civil War's, the U.S.'s first all-black regiment who volunteer as a company to fight. And it follows them in this war that they feel like they shouldn't fight for their country, some of them believe. And that's justified, that opinion. But it's about fighting for something that you believe in and fighting for the future of what your country could be and could become. Mm-hmm. The idea of it, yeah. And the idea of America if if you know, you can win the war. And even though you've been treated horribly your entire life and the people who rate and the people before you were treated horribly, a future that is worth living is worth dying for. And I think that's one of the great messages of the film. But it's awesome filmmaking, wow. too. I just got goosebumps, man. Thanks. <laughs> Next up, we have at number 42, The Goonies, another childhood classic. There's a bunch of those on this list. This is a, a top-tier one. Iconic cast. It's just it's just like a kid's... It's a perfect kid's movie. Kids going on a treasure hunt. Hey, you guys! <laughs> it's super funny. It's charming. It's sweet. It's cute. Uh, I love the cast. Uh, I love the script. Uh, a bunch of great big stars now in very early roles for them. Um, the, the Goonies is just so iconic, and I'm so glad that it hasn't been remade. 
and I really hope that I, I hope this is an IP that never gets touched because they can't you can't you can't do it again. You can't. No. Listen to don't me, reboot. Netflix. Listen to me, Netflix. Don't touch the Goonies. Someone's gonna make the Goonies. <laughs> they will. I'm shocked they haven't yet. I'm shocked too. Whoever owns the rights is like, fuck you guys. We're not. Fuck you guys. <laughs> We're not selling. Oh my god, I'm so glad I get to the, do the next movie. <laughs> I was inverted. <laughs> Anthony, I got. I have a need. The need, need for, for speed. speed. Oh yeah, Top Gun, baby. One of the best movies ever made. <laughs> That's not the, one of the best movies ever. As I go that far, but it's an awesome movie. Top Gun Maverick. We could talk yeah, about. Yeah, then we could have that conversation. Top Gun's legendary. You all know how much we love Tom. You all know how much we love Top Gun. And Tony Scott was such a terrific filmmaker. Oh yeah, I love his movies so so much. You know, he's he's missed in the film world. I think, especially you know? in the action genre. Yeah, he was one of the best action filmmakers ever. I saw a Michael a Michael Bay interview. He's doing a Q and A at one of his films recently. He said that like he's like Paul Greengrass gets all the recognition for like the fast edits and and fast paced action. Even though I started doing it before him, and then I I was watching it. I was like. Yeah, and Tony Scott did Tony Scott did it before you, motherfucker. <laughs> like, I love you, Michael Bay. You're cool, but like, Tony Scott invented the action style that you use, possibly. But you know, Top Gun was visually stunning. There really never been anything quite like this before, and it's macho as hell, <laughs> masculine as hell, patriotic as hell, and romantic as hell. And it really, it didn't. Obviously, Tom was a well-known guy, but I think this launched him in the superstardom as well as turned him into uh, an adrenaline junkie yes. stuntman because he never even had ridden a motorcycle before this movie. He wrote, learned how to ride, rode a, he learned how to ride a motorcycle for this movie, obviously got hooked on flying in jets and planes. And I feel like without Top Gun, we wouldn't have the Tom Cruise we have today. You know, he might have stuck to like a more of a Streisand route versus uh... a... <laughs> Sick reference, bro. <laughs> Your references are out of control. Everybody knows that. That's a that's a four year old virgin reference. <laughs> um, he he might have just stuck to doing dramedy or, or dramas and comedies. He would have done action eventually. He probably would have. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he would have, but it, maybe not to the extent he is doing now in terms of being the biggest stuntman alive and just being the fucking man. <laughs> um, but I fucking love Top Gun, man. I could talk about it all day. Oh man, that's great. Danger Zone, baby. All right, want to move into uh, our intermission before we get into the final 40? Yeah, let's do that. List. All right, we got a great one to start out the top 40, but first we'll get into our intermission. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of Lost Podcast is to first, if you're in Boston, get tickets to our live show. Live show, baby. It's happening on April 18th, which is a Thursday at the Middle East Club in Boston. If you're in Massachusetts or anywhere near there, I highly suggest coming out to the show because it's going to be a blast at doors open at 7 p.m. Yes, sir. It's going to be so much fun, so we'll be in town. We'll be in the city. So. April 18th at the Middle East in Link Boston. in our description of the episode as well as our Instagram and everything like that. Yeah, our website, RaidersOfLostPodcast.com, has a button to get tickets, so just click the link in our bio. Does or it just, really? Yeah, just go on. I put it on the website. Wow. I forgot to tell you. Nice, man. Yeah, so it's on our website. Just go to RaidersOfLostPodcast.com. So April 18th, 2024, yes. Raiders of Lost will be live in Boston. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to do the show. best Boston movies oh, for an episode gonna on be, it. It's going to yeah. be a, a good show. We're pretty excited about it, as well as... Obviously, become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You get yes, awesome sir. perks like bonus episodes, exclusive content, watch party access, Discord access. It's crazy how many perks you can get on our Patreon, Anthony, isn't it? It's wild. It's insane. Also, leave those <laughs> five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It is essential to helping our show grow and get seen by new people. We are competing with 
18 billion shows on now. We need there's more help. shows than people? There's more shows. There's more podcasts than human beings. We need your help, everybody. So leave those five-star ratings and reviews. And we love to read the written reviews out. I'll read one out in a minute. I got some unsubscribes to read too. Oh, later. I can't wait. I can't wait. Now, this episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at Movie your Friends. James's friends at <laughs> MoviePosters.com. The number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order right now. They're doing a movie poster giveaway contest in this episode. So if you want to win a free movie poster from MoviePosters.com, all you got to do is make a comment in this episode on YouTube. The 80 best movies from the 1980s. Make a comment in that episode, and it enters you automatically into the poster contest giveaway. We're going to pick a winner in a week. In the meantime, make sure MoviePosters.com is your only one-stop shop for all of your poster needs. All sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting. They have pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their library and collection. So be sure to head on over there and use our promo code, like always, Raiders10, to get 10% off your order right now. Heck yeah. Heck yeah, baby. Let's get into this intermission, kid. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready, guy. I'm ready. All right, movie quote competition. Mine's between a couple different characters, but it's great. It sounds complicated. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by dickless here. They caused an explosion? Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It's Ghostbusters. <laughs> Bill, yeah, Murray. Bill Murray. Bill Murray in the office. This man has no dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's a fucking good one. <laughs> that one got me. I'm giggling. All right, here's my It's excellent delivery. I'll you say. did a great job. Yeah. You did a great job. Thanks, man. All right, here's mine. Listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in the first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. It's a poker movie. Is it... Huh, what what, what movie is this? Say it one more time. <clears throat> Listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in the first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. Oh, that's Matt. That's, um, fuck, why can't I think of the name of the movie? Oh, my God. I love that you got my impression of him. Oh, my God. What? We're, we're going to do an episode on this. I'm blanking so hard on this. <laughs> you suck. God damn it. What's it fucking called? <laughs> I love this movie. Apparently not. Holy crap. Why am I blanking so hard? I don't know, man. You love this movie. I know. It's just in the moment. I'm just, I can't think of it. You're panicking. You're nervous. I'm so, I'm so anxious right now. Okay, think poker. Think Edward Norton. No, I can think the whole... I'm I know, I'm just trying to help you. I'm trying to help. I know you worm, know what I'm talking worm, about. Edward Norton plays Worm. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's Rounders. Rounders. You weren't God gonna, damn you weren't it! Get it. <laughs> God damn it! I'm glad you got my impression. Thanks. I tried to do a Matt Damon. Pretty good. Thanks, man. Thanks. I can't believe I didn't get the name of that movie. I fucking love Rounders. I watched it the other night. It's so good. In my defense. Yes? I'm still jet lagged. Oh my God, it's been three days. It's been two days. Okay. You got you slept last night, didn't you? I slept. Doesn't mean Did you eat some food? I had You I didn't had, even land yesterday. You landed two nights ago. At it was at night. So I was awake for twenty six <laughs> hours, man. You feel the repercussions of that uh -huh. kind of event for days. <laughs> it's, it's it's ripple effects. It's exactly it never what's happening. Yeah. It never ends. All right. That's why I didn't get routers. I don't think you would have gotten either way. <laughs> yes, I would have. Have you even seen routers? Fuck you. <laughs> I in my house I splash the pot whenever the fuck I want. 
All right, what's your uh, movie release year? Risky Business. Risky Business, 1981. 83. 83. Close, close. What year did Amadeus come out? 1988. 1984. Wow, it's that old. Holy crap. Wait, is it 84? Let me double check. I think I want to double check that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna double I think check. I'm right. I think I'm correct. 84. Incorrect. Says you. <laughs> but you didn't say that, though. You could be lying. Google it. You have uh, IMDb open on your phone. Yeah, but my phone's asleep. <laughs> All right, my movie really... Wait, what's your... Uh... Movie pop quiz time. Yeah, what's your quiz time? Okay. <clears throat> Name the years of release of the first three Indiana Jones films. Shit, years of release for them all. Okay. 81. Yes, for Raiders of Lost Ark. 86. Eh. 84. 84 for Temple of Doom. 88. Eh. 89. 89 for The Last Crusade. All right, not bad. That's pretty good. You got close. one. Yeah, we yeah, got one. You got one. We got one. It's a tough question. It is. Nobody could have gotten that one. <laughs> I probably would have. You didn't even get rounders. Anyways, <laughs> who do we have for haters this week besides you, Anthony? You didn't get to my quiz question. What's your quiz question? How many Oscars did Amadeus win? Amadeus won three Oscars. Eight Oscars. Plus five. You, <laughs> you, you let me finish my question, my, my answer. I saw a Nolan interview, and he, he drew from Amadeus for Oppenheimer. Now it makes total sense because yeah. Amadeus is about – uh, Mozart's rival who hated him and is helping tell half the story from his perspective. And then, then when I saw him say that, I was like, oh my God, how did I not notice that? Mm-hmm. It's like so, it's like a perfect film that he laid the groundwork as inspired by that movie, how I'm going to structure the story with uh, Louis Strauss and Oppenheimer. It was great. Mm-hmm. Great interview. All right, we got a bunch of unsubscribes today. Uh, I've been doing them over Letterbox Recap, but I, I still gathered a bunch now that you're back. So we have Evan Smith in our Apocalypse Now episode. Honestly, not sure I've not heard of this one. Putting it on my list, unsubscribe for spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Natalie wrote on our most anticipated movies of 2024. Her name is Dorothy, not Goldilocks. All the words of Oz fans rise and unsubscribe. We call her Goldilocks. We call her Goldilocks? Yeah, I'm we, sure you call her Goldilocks. Uh, one of us did. It's probably you. Yeah, it was probably you. It's probably you. P.S. I don't recall a tornado being present in the in the plot of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> <laughs> oh did my we god! Really say Goldilocks? Yeah, we did. Well, you did. You probably did. No, you did. Next up <laughs> in our V for Vendetta episode, Robert wrote, "New listener, digging the pod." But dudes, David Fincher directed Fight Club. Of course, my man knows how to direct a fight scene. Unsubscribe. <laughs> That's right. That's a good point. That's a good point. It's a good point. Next up. Lord Huff wrote in the Argyle unboxing. I wrote so I did the unboxing for the I un, for the Argyle movie package. Yeah, and there was lipstick as part of the package, mm-hmm. and I wrote oh lipstick for the ladies, and then Lord Huff wrote for the ladies unsubscribed, <laughs> canceled, <laughs> canceled. Anthony's, Anthony's canceled. getting canceled left and right, man. Without I you, think... without you to keep me in my keep me at the reins, canceled. If man. I saw that video, if I saw you filming, that, I'd be like, bro. <laughs> Bro, you need to redo that shit right now. <laughs> then we have... Why can't I wear lipstick, Anthony? <laughs> you can. Wear it. Thanks. Wear it. Did you save it? <laughs> no, I trashed it. How could you? <laughs> Sorry, Argyle. 
All right, next up on our movie news episode last week, Nathan Fielder wrote, 326 wrote, Extra butter, hold the popcorn, unsubscribe <laughs> for the dude popcorn. <laughs> and then uh, Alexandra, Alexandra wrote, Miss James so much and their banter. I haven't even listened to Letterboxd Recap since he's not there. Aww. Unsubscribed. Missed you too. I wrote that. He's back now. Alexander James is back. He's back in black. He's back in black. I'm actually wearing green. Shut green. up. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting for it. Some wisecrack. Oh, man. <laughs> Mr. Knee Slappers while you're in England, man. Hey, man. I'm sure everyone missed me, clearly. It's just Anthony like, hey, I'm going to talk about movies today. I really enjoyed this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You should listen to the movie news episode I just did. It was very, I was very personal. I really enjoyed the sneak preview of Dune Part 2. It's a film that comes out in 2024. You may not know. It was supposed to. Anyways. I did a great ad on TikTok, and it was very. Hey, like I said, you did a really great job. I acted my ass off in that. I think you're really good. Thanks, man. I have a great uh, five-star review. What do we got? From. Brayden. Brayden! <laughs> he wrote, just the title of the review makes me laugh and smile. It's called Very Handsome. Aw. I fell in love with these guys romantically, maybe, years ago when I saw them wearing <laughs> legless wigs. Since then, I can't stop listening. They're my pals, whether they know me or not. I Uber a lot, and I constantly have their podcast playing for hours on end for every rider that gets in my car to listen and enjoy. No <laughs> that's way. amazing. That's awesome. Please listen to these guys if you love movies and bro banter. If they mispronounce a word, it will happen. You can always <laughs> unsubscribe. <laughs> Thanks, Braden. Appreciate you, pal. Driving around. We will mispronounce right words. <laughs> yeah, we gotta get Braden some uh, business cards that like our business cards that he passed Hand out, out to. Yeah. 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 Thanks, pal. That's great. Oh man. All right. What is your streaming recommendation, Anthony? My recommendation is Masters of the Air on Apple TV. It's the new World War II aviation series about pilots in the war. Uh, starring Austin Butler, Kalen Turner, and Barry Keoghan. It's fantastic. Produced by both Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And my God, it's, it's it like lives up to the same hype as Band of Brothers, but this time in the air. The aerial sequences are unbelievable. They're astounding, exciting. It's also, it's a hard R. It's gory, and it's really intense sometimes. And it's I was like, there's a moment in, in the first episode where it's like someone got his fucking face blown off. I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. But on top of that, it's charming. It's got like the class and charm of like an old Hollywood movie from the 50s. And it's got that classical romance aspect to it. And the lead actors are just really dynamite. These are a couple of the uh, biggest stars of their generation. And they are just phenomenal. I love the show. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. My recommendation is Kingdom which is a zombie TV show on Netflix from South Korea, and this shit slaps. It's nice. so badass. It's exactly what you'd want in a zombie show. So it's, it's a period piece, you said, right? Period piece, uh -huh. and it's swords and arrows and zombies. Wow. It's great, but it's also got a great storyline about a kingdom and a dynasty and uh, another family trying to take over the country. It's excellent. Filmmaking so cool. The stunts are awesome. And it takes a couple episodes to really get going in terms of the action because they're setting up a great story. Yeah. But it's insanely clever, the setup. I don't want to spoil what it is, but it's a very, very smart show. With how they establish how zombies formed? Yes, yeah. and, and how it's connected to the coup happening with the kingdom in terms mm -hmm. of a new family trying to take over. It's fucking awesome. I, I can't recommend it enough. And it's only two seasons, 
and it goes hard. It goes real hard. Yeah, it's my brutal, and it's it's really great practical filmmaking in terms of just hordes of zombies, so mm-hmm. many extras. It they put a lot of money into this, and it's just so well made. I gotta watch this because our friend Nathan was telling us about it too. And, you gotta, he got. Yeah. I watched it with him. I gotta, I gotta watch this. Yeah. It sounds fucking great. All right, let's get back into our episode of the 80 best movies from the 1980s. Starting off at number 40, we have another Michael Mann film. We have Thief, starring James Caan. This movie's excellence. One of the best heist movies ever made. Oh, yeah. Insanely good filmmaking from Michael Mann. This was his debut, which is absurd because it's that fucking good. And James Caan's awesome, obviously. He's just a very macho, charismatic Tough-talking guy that he portrayed in many of his films with some undertones of vulnerability, for sure. He liked, He was often in movies where the, where the title was like a tough guy thing, like The Gambler. He's a thief. tough guy. <laughs> tough guy. Tough guy's not a movie. I'm just kidding. But he's he's this, he plays a thief who's been pulling jobs for a mob, and he's trying to get out, but they won't let him out. Because he's so good. He's so good at what he does, they can't let him go. You know, he needs you around. <laughs> so it's basically try, him trying to— It's like Mugatu in Zoolander. Yeah, even though he settles the score, he's trying to get out, but he can't. And it's just about basically him just trying to get out of the, out of the situation. He's trying to get out? <laughs> I'm not sure. Is he trying to get out or what? <laughs> I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> it's the contrast, the thief. Uh, at number 39, we have Wings of Desire. Uh, Wim, Wemder, Wim Wenders Wim, Wim, film. Uh, Wim, <laughs> <laughs> Wim Wenders film about an angel who falls in love with a woman on earth a really really great film romantic uh, the use of color and black and white footage is super interesting um, and it's really cool filmmaking uh, It's Wim Wenders is a special filmmaker I can't wait to see his new film Perfect Days which comes out very soon uh, a Japanese film uh, really fantastic director um, beautiful Visually stunning, incredible cinematography and practical effects. I highly recommend Wings of Desire. Next up, we have the 1985 Palme d'Or winner from Martin Scorsese. Oh, yeah. After Hours, which is just such a good time. This movie follows this guy who basically he meets this girl at a little bar or restaurant, and it's in New York. And he basically gets into adventure in New York City as he's just trying to get laid by this girl. But it leads him on this crazy night of hijinks, of horrible things going wrong happening to him. Good luck, bad luck, good luck, bad luck. It's this constant sway of him, like, trying to get laid by this girl or any girl or or just trying to get home. And then at the end of the movie, he's just trying to get home and he can't get home because it's the middle of the night in New York City and all the subways are closed. But it's fucking awesome. It's, it's suspenseful as hell. So much energy. Excellent filmmaking, obviously, and excellent acting, but there's really nothing like this movie I can think of. It's so unique and so fun, and you'll, you'll constantly be saying, he's like, oh, my God, like, you, you think he's going to get out. You think he's going to make it home, but he can't. Something happens. It's just all these things happen to him. It's just absurd and hysterical. So fucking funny. Yeah. It's so good. Next up, we have another Wim Wenders film, Paris, Texas. Uh, this one's written by Sam Shepard, who is actually in The Right Stuff. Great actor who passed away a couple years ago. Uh, uh, Paris, Texas is a really stunning movie. It's really exceptional. There's re- nothing quite like it. And it's about this uh, this man who's been wandering off, and he's kind of lost his place in, in everything. His brother finds him in the middle of nowhere and brings him back home. And then he tries to reconnect with uh, the mother of his child. Um, it's a really beautiful film. Really interesting movie. Uh, beautiful cinematography and production. Uh, I, I adore Paris, Texas. It's a special, special film. 
Very, very deeply emotional. Next up, we have another Rob Reiner film (laughs) from writer Nora Ephron. We have When Harry Met Sally, starring the great Billy Crystal and the excellent Meg Ryan. And it's sort of a Annie Hall-esque feel to this movie. Sure. The comedy and the relationships. It's about these two characters who have been friends for a long time. Is it uh, Harry and Sally? Harry and Sally. That's that's them. And Bob. (laughs) Just kidding. Bob's not in this movie. But Harry and Sally, they've been friends for a long time. They've known each other for a while. And then... What happens if they have sex? Will they be in a relationship or will they not be in a relationship? Can they do the thing of not have not being in a relationship while having sex or will it complicate things? And it's basically just a great relationship film. It's a great comedy, great drama, but I, I think it's just one of the better romantic comedies of all time. It oh, might yeah. be the best romantic comedy ever. Yeah, it could be, and it's got it's got like one of the best lines ever at the end at the at the New Year's party. It's just really really great movie. Yeah, I would say that this and Annie Hall are probably the best rom coms. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would say I would say I would agree with that. Yeah. I second that. Yeah. What a statement. It's facts, bro. To contrast the romantic comedy, we have one of the best action movies and in my opinion the ultimate buddy cop movie with Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon is just oh my god, it it changed the action genre. Uh it's so much fun. The action's great. It's pulpy, it's sexy, it's got saxophone. <laughs> It's so cool. It's one of a kind. And I mean, I don't know why, but we like we've watched this so much as kids. Like this is not a kids movie at all. It was just huge. Yeah, it was, it was a huge movie. Yeah, it was massive. It was almost as big as Mel Gibson's hair in it. Yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> his hair in the eighties, man. <laughs> the blowout, man. It's it's like that meme where it's it's Gibson with his hair, he's holding the cigarette, but the meme is <laughs> your mom watching you open your Christmas presents in the nineteen nineties. Like <laughs> it's so true I remember that meme that was a good one yeah oh man that was funny oh man Lethal Weapon it's fucking iconic man hell yeah we have to put it this high man I love this franchise so so much he's so good in this movie oh yeah Danny Glover's awesome too I'm getting too old for this shit (laughs) I'm getting too the funny thing is even though he says that line I'm getting too old for this like over and over again he's like 52 in this movie yeah he's not that old not even that old not that that old (laughs) Let's move on to number 34 on our list. We have another high school comedy. We have the legendary Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is basically this ensemble story of high schoolers at this school over the course of like just a couple of weeks, really, maybe even less. And it's got great performances. I mean, Sean Penn is sensational in this as Spicoli, uh, but he's not the lead. The main characters, it's sort of the same thing as a lot of high school movies, trying to get a girlfriend, trying to get laid, basically. But then exploring the different types of cliques and kids at high school, as well as the teachers, Mr. Hand, the, the hard-nosed teacher that uh, they can't stand, and Spicoli is, even though Spicoli's not the lead of this movie, he's the poster, he is yeah. the movie. Yeah. But um, this is a classic, it's an all-timer, and uh, everyone who's in high school, if you've never seen this movie, you gotta watch it. Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a classic. Gotta watch it. Gotta watch gotta. it. gotta you got to. Next up, we have Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, man. At number 33. Uh, one of the most powerful, tragic animated films I have ever seen in my life. It's really heartbreaking. Um, just like my voice. I was about to say heartbreaking. <laughs> heartbreaking. Uh, stunning animation and visuals. It's it's really, oh, my God. It's so powerful and, and so intense. Uh, but essential viewing, I think, as well. It's a really beautiful film. We have another Brian De Palma film coming up next. Yes! 
We have Scarface starring the man himself, Al Pacino. Scarface is legendary. We did an episode on it like a year ago. That was an early episode, yeah. So much fun. You know, I I loved watching this movie when I was like a teenager and way too young to be watching it. Like, I feel like we watched it when we were under 10, maybe. We watched it a lot. Probably. We watched this all the time when we were kids. (laughs) We did. (laughs) But Scarface, it's a legendary movie. Not to mention it was in every episode of MTV Cribs. I think someone had the poster of it on the walls. (laughs) A framed Scarface poster. It's also, Grand Theft Auto would not exist without Scarface. It's true. But, you know, Tony Montana Tony Montana is a legendary character in cinema, and Al Pacino is the man in this movie. And it's, it's, y'all, y'all have seen it. We love Scarface. Next up, we have another vampire film, The Lost Boys at number 31. Uh, it's just one of the coolest movies from the 80s. One of the coolest vampire movies, too. And speaking of Mel Gibson's hair, it's got nothing on the hair in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely not. The blowouts are insane. It's just uh, it, it's it's it blends a lot of the genres together. You have the hip eighties movie. You have the teen romance. You have the horror movie, the vampire movie, uh, the glam rock. Uh, you get the uh, the shredded saxophone player. <laughs> Massive <laughs> for no reason. Uh, but it's it's got really great kills. Kiefer Sutherland once again as a dynamic villain. He's so strong in this film. Really, really great presence. Uh, I adore The Lost Boys. It is a cool movie. That's the yeah. best way to describe it. It is cool as hell. I already soundtrack, said that. The soundtrack, the wardrobe, the hair. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland's great in this movie. <laughs> 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 Moving on to number 30 on our list. Batman Baby from Tim Burton, 1989, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, who is the Joker in this film. But Michael Keaton as Batman is is just chef's kiss. He's perfect as the character. And you know what Tim Burton did in terms of creating a great aesthetic for not just Batman, but Gotham City with his dark twist and his dark gothic influence from German Expressionism and putting that all in this great comic book movie from 1989 that really was huge for the genre. Yeah. Uh, Batman is is an awesome awesome movie, and I, I just love to see Michael Keaton in the Flash. I, I I enjoyed the fuck out of the Flash. I don't care what anyone I mean. Says. Did you see my tweet? No, what? I tweeted uh, my highest rate ratings higher than average on Letterbox because they Letterbox did a tweet about it, and yeah. everybody was reposting theirs. So I did mine, and I put because I had Rise of the Skywalker and the Flash as four stars both, and I got so much hate for both of them. I enjoyed the hell I out of the Flash. I liked the Flash a lot. I left the theater having a great time. Yeah. I had a good and, time. It was awesome to see Michael Keaton back as Batman. Even though, you know, the multiverse is just getting ridiculous these days, I still really enjoyed the fuck out of him being in the movie. And I thought he was awesome in it. And because we grew up, obviously, with Michael Keaton as our Batman, even though Christian's our Batman because we were of age of just really enjoying movies more, I think, rather than just being a kid. But, you know, Michael Keaton is a legend. And fucking love Batman. I mean, I think that. I think he was a perfect uh, Batman and Bruce Wayne for yeah, the time. He was, he was excellent. He's fantastic. He's awesome. All right, next up, we have Andre Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice at number 29. Uh, just like all of his films, they're existential, uh, metaphorical um, art pieces uh, about feelings and ideas more than plots. Uh, this is uh, people dealing with the news that World War Three is upon them and about to happen and showcases the contrast with nature, destruction, uh, humanity, 
so many big themes are illustrated just with visuals, and it's hard to it's hard to keep up with. You have to watch it a few times to even make sense of a little bit of it. Uh, but like all of his films, they're beautifully made and stunning and um, visual feasts. Honestly, just like incredible imagery. And this one uh, is mostly set in one area, and it's just a phenomenal movie. It's it's hard to wrap your head around, but it's still a monumental piece of filmmaking. Next up, we have another David Lynch film, Blue Velvet, which came out in 1986, starring some regulars. Obviously, we have Laura Laura Dern. We have the original Paul Atreides in this, Kyle MacLachlan, <laughs> Isabella Rossellini, and Dennis Hopper, who plays an excellent killer in this movie. When people think of like all-time killers in movies, I feel like Anton Chigurh is one that's always at the top of lists. But I think Dennis Hopper is awesome in this movie. Dennis Hopper is amazing in it. Uh, there's a se- there's a severed ear in this movie. There's kidnapping. It's sexy. It's intense. It's dark. It's gritty. There is blue velvet in it as well. Um, but it's an awesome movie. It really is. David Lynch said in an interview that uh, when he spoke with Dennis Hopper on the phone about the script, Dennis Hopper said, yeah, I'm perfect for this because I am this guy in real life. And David Lynch was terrified of him after that. (laughs) And he went to the rest of the cast. He's like, so yeah, uh, Dennis, I'm not sure how we're going to deal with him. Apparently he's... He's like really connected to the character. <laughs> he looks like he had a lot of fun. Yeah, he's fucking he's wild very into, in this, into the character. Next up, we have Possession, which is one of the greatest horror romance films. of all times. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's without a doubt one of the sorry. most fucked up movies ever made. It's bizarre. It's it's crazy in all the right ways, uh, and it's just absurdist horror. Um, it's about. Femininity is about uh, power dynamics, but illustrated with, you know, a monstrous undertone is a fun way to say it. It's, it features one of the more impressive performances in a horror film I've ever seen in my life. An actress who c- totally commits to her role and uh, goes above and beyond. And that tunnel sequence in particular in the subway tunnel is just fucking unbelievable. Pretty gross. But there's a, there's a moment in this film where you finally or it's finally revealed what's happening. And it's this mixture of horror uh, and comedy and absolute absurdity. And it's hard to even, like, define. But you're just like, what on earth? This is absolutely insane. But I, it's crazy. I love it. I said, I think, I think I said, what the fuck, three times while I was watching mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> but it was awesome. I fucking love Possession, yeah. dude. It's excellent. And there's so much energy. It just immediately it's so fast and you know it's there's the movement and the, the performances it's so physical and this movie grabs you immediately and just doesn't fucking let you go and the camera works great he gets like most of the filming is like done right up in the actors faces yeah you know it's you're, you're right up in there with like a wide lens it's hectic man yeah. it's a hectic movie it's bizarre next up we have one of the best sequels ever we have The Color of Money from Martin Scorsese. We've talked about this probably way too much the last six months on the show, but that's because we love this movie so damn much. It's a sequel to The Hustler starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, baby. Lots of Tom in this one. Tom Cruise is awesome this movie, and he plays Vincent, a new hotshot billiards player, pool player, and obviously Paul Newman plays Fast Eddie from The Hustler. And it's just so excellent. We can't. I can't describe it enough. How I can't describe what I'm feeling. How Martin Scorsese is just a master because he makes a movie about pool so cinematic and engaging and entertaining. It's awesome. It's it's an awesome time. It's so good. I can't recommend Color of Money enough. Next up, we have the war film, The Tragedy, Come and See. 
at 25, set in Germany. And it's about uh, the death of innocence in a time of war. And a young boy who's forced to forced into the most horrific and destroying circumstances and situations imaginable. And uh, it puts the, the horrors of war on the doorstep of adolescence. And it's extremely powerful. It's disturbing. It's a hard watch, um, but it's well worth it. And it lives up to all the hype. It's recently gotten a lot of a big resurgence in qual in people watching it of newer generations, which I think is great. Um, it's an all-time war film for sure, but it, it's so immensely powerful and tragic. It's in, it's horrible, honestly. Next up, we have Sergio Leone movie, Once Upon a Time in America, starring Robert De Niro. Oh yeah, and James Woods. It's a great. It's a great American movie, but it's a great gangster movie as well in terms of this gangster who goes back to uh, New York, Manhattan 35 years later after he's been gone for so long mm-hmm. and kind of just has to face his ghosts, face his past. It's impeccable filmmaking. It really is. The cinematography is astounding in this movie. And Sergio Leone is just a legend. He's one of the best. And this movie's fucking excellent. Can't recommend it enough. De Niro's so, so good in this. James Woods is excellent as well. Um, this is like least douchey role. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. I guess <laughs> he's great at playing a douchebag. Yeah, he's. You're right. <laughs> he he is pretty good at it. <laughs> you know, he's an IQ of like 165. Really, James Woods. Yeah, like maybe that's why he talks so fast. All right, next up, we have one of my favorite coming of age movies. It could be the best coming of age movie of all time. It's up there, The Karate Kid. Karate Kid is so goddamn good we watched it again we did an episode on it last year and man i fucking love it man i love it this is uh we own this on vhs we wore the vhs out this is one of our favorite childhood films by far i always thought that daniel son and mr miyagi were just like icons of cinema and we even the sequel we really like too and it's just a phenomenal film about uh the difficulties of adolescence tragedy uh, broken homes and also father figures. I think Mr. Miyagi is a untalked about father figure, and he's unbelievable to, to Daniel in this in this movie, giving him a car, teaching him things, uh, showing him inner strength, and building him up when he was broken and and weak and a victim, and turning him into someone who could handle the world and handle conflict so well. And it's a really beautiful, in a way, father son dynamic they have, and it's it's just great character work. Great, great music, great LA movie. Great, great, great LA movie. Yeah, they moved to LA, and it's just a wonderful film. I adore, I adore, and I know you do. The Karate I, I Kid. love it because the East Coaster moves to LA, so yeah. it's, it's relatable. It's super relatable. Basically, I I went through everything that Daniel goes through, <laughs> <laughs> except for the karate stuff. Except for everything. We did do karate as kids because of this movie. Yeah, we tried it for a couple of years. Karate was pretty big. Yeah. Moving on next to number twenty-two, maybe the best coming of age film of all time, maybe. We have Dead Poets Society, which stars the great Robin Williams, who plays a maverick teacher. Who? Why are you laughing over there? <laughs> Nothing. What are you laughing at? I, I just thought of a joke. <laughs> I can see Anthony just smirking. <laughs> you'll see. You'll he see. He plays a maverick teacher who. It's not about you. At a boarding school in New England, where he used to go to when he was young. He's this new English teacher who is sort of breaking the rules of the boarding school and the traditions to not just teach the boys at the school, but also to show them how to live. 
and to promote art and human expression. Poetry. Poetry specifically is is his great passion, but also but anything really, anything that makes you live, whether it's acting or art or sports or whatever. But he's an insanely influential person in all these on these boys, but he's breaking the rules basically and kind of doing his own style of teaching, which the boarding school doesn't appreciate, as well as just giving these kids, these young boys, passion really effectively. It's a beautiful movie. There's it's filled with great comedy, great filmmaking, great writing, but also great tragedy as well. Because even though you're sometimes trying to do good, there are repercussions to that. And it and there can be tragic and, and fatal consequences to really anything you're trying to do, no matter how right you are. And it's sad as fuck. But I think it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Robin, he if you think about it, he was so great at father figure roles. Speaking yeah. of father figures, whether he's playing actual fathers or father figures. So like Dead Poets, Google Hunting, Mrs. Doubtfire. Well, he's a shitty dad, Mrs. Doubtfire. He becomes a great dad. By the end of the movie, yeah. Yeah, he gives up everything to spend time with his kids. But he's a shitty dad for like... Yes. At first. But he becomes a great dad. Well, he's, it's not that he's a shitty dad. It's just that he doesn't know how to be a dad. Yeah. Exactly, that's the point. It's not shitty. He's just still. He's like he treats them like they're friends yeah. rather than his kids. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. I miss him, but I think that's the reason why people gravitate to him so much because mm-hmm. he was great in father father roles. Yeah. So next up at number twenty one, we have another coming of age film. Probably the best coming of age film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Oliver uh, Stone's Platoon. <laughs> You're ridiculous. <laughs> That's why I was smirking. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Now. <laughs> Do you get the joke? Anthony thought of a, of a joke. Everybody, <laughs> we'll, we'll mark this day in history, February fifth. Anthony came up with a joke. <laughs> oh my god, Platoon's great. Um, Oliver Stone. I mean, he was in Vietnam, so he was a perfect director for a movie like this, bringing his own experience and expertise to the story. It's got a great cast. It's it's moving. It's really profound devastating um the characters are incredible and you know we see so many great actors at a young age in this film um and one of the one of the most legendary deaths uh, on-screen deaths of all time is willem dafoe's death in this film arms up in the air getting shot in the back um spoofed so well in training yeah. uh, tropic thunder <laughs> he's shot like 50 times survive survive <laughs> squibs going off all over his body and he's still standing <laughs> Uh, but uh, Platoon is an unbelievable war movie. It's an all-timer for sure. And it's probably still... Uh, it's Oliver Stone's best film, probably. He's made some good ones. It's either this or, or JFK. Yeah, JFK is really good. Um, did he make... What's the Johnny Depp drug movie? Donnie Brasco? No, the drug movie. Blow? Blow. Did he make Blow? He may have. I really like Blow. He may have. I like that movie a lot. It's possibly. It's possible. It's did. possibly. It's possible. Moving on to the top 20 now, everybody. Now we're into all-time banger territory. All-time, all-time banger all-time. territory. Number 20 on our list, we have Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, the third film in the franchise starring Harrison Ford, and we have the legend himself, Mr. Sean Connery, playing Henry Sr. in this film. Now, in this film, Indiana Jones' father, Henry Sr., has been, is missing, and while spending his life trying to look after and find and discover the Holy Grail, Harrison Ford's character, Indiana Jones, is on a quest. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> In a race. You're trying to piece this plot together. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you I'm, saying? Listen, I'm so tired right now. I'm exhausted. 
<laughs> I'm exhausted. I'm not gonna oh lie. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I can't keep it Andy's together. in a race <laughs> against the Nazis to find the Holy Grail and his father, who's missing amongst the Nazis. <laughs> we got that already. Whew. Wow, what a synopsis. <laughs> what a synopsis. I can't wait to watch this now. Also, beautiful shots in Italy in this one. Ah, <laughs> oh, Venice. Ah, oh, Venice. Cool, right? <laughs> Next up. My brain hurts. At number 19, we have Predator starring Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and Carl Weathers. Rest in peace. This is one of the best action movies ever, one of the best horror movies ever, one of the best alien movies ever. One of the best war movies ever. It's just one of the best movies ever. I put it in my top 100. Me too. We did it in our our top 100 movies, Predator, both of us. Yeah. It's that good. And it's iconic. It's our childhood. I always thought like Predator was just like the fucking coolest movie ever. And it still is. It still holds up. It's it's perfectly directed by John McTiernan. Expertly directed. Like every shot, every decision, you're like, this is just nothing about this isn't perfect. It's just amazing. Amazing, amazing movie. I love it. They'll never do it, man. They'll never make anything close to this and good. Dutch and Dylan. 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 <laughs> My God. My God. Just Arnold being the most Arnold he is. It's true. Just great. Next up, we have, coming out in 1989, just made the cut. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. We talked about this in the spotlight. We did a Spike Yes, we did a Spike Spotlight. It's an excellent, excellent movie. Also... A top tier, top all time movie poster as well, I think, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it takes place on the hottest day of the year in Brooklyn, in New York City, where racial tensions are high. And it just follows kind of a day in the life of the neighborhood in the area, as well as a, a lot of conflicts happening at a local pizzeria. John Turturro's excellent as well. Spike Lee plays the lead character in this movie. Um, I think it's just a great American movie. It's it's great. It's really smart setup because Saul's uh, Saul's Pizza Shop. There are only Italian Americans on the wall. Yeah, and it's a black neighborhood that it shops in, and it's like, why don't you have any black men on your wall? And so that's really what that's the catalyst for it's it the all. catalyst. But it's also yeah. because tensions are so high. It's just yeah. something as simple as that yes, exactly. set off the whole community. Yeah, and it's also a metaphor too. It's great. Uh, Ruby D's in this. As oh well. yeah, yeah. And then also, who else is in this? So Danny Aiello plays Sal, John Turturro, yeah. Giancarlo Esposito's excellent in this film, as well as, yeah, fucking awesome movie. Damn right. Damn right. Next up we have- Rosie Perez. Rosie film. Perez, yeah. yeah. Jeopardy, man. Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Next up we have The King of Comedy at number 17, another Martin Scorsese film. Man, this guy just fucking, he's the best. <laughs> he's the best. The King of Comedy is one of the best dark comedies of all time. Robert De Niro plays an obsessive fan of Jerry Lewis, a Jerry Lewis type character, and desperate to get a spot on the television show to do his stand up routine, he kidnaps the talk show host and threatens to kill him unless the police allow him to go on the show. It's a really great setup for uh, a maniac, like sociopathic uh, protagonist who you also like feel bad for, and like kind of want him to get his thing because he's so pathetic in a way. It's it's like. Robert De Niro has always been one of the coolest actors ever, but he's just embarrassing to look at and to watch in this film. You it's know like what I mean? Gosling and Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah, yeah. It's like you feel so bad just watching him. You're like, this guy's just a, a loser. It's like the biggest loser ever. Rupert Pumpkin. Rupert Pum- Pumpkin. Pumpkin. Pun- pun- pumpkin. 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 And it's just 
Scorsese bringing his incredible filmmaking bravado into a comedy like this, and it's just one of a kind. It's great. Next up at number 16. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Woo! We have Die Hard. You all know how much we love Die Hard. The best Christmas movie of all time. One of the best action movies ever. Bruce Willis is a fucking star. John McClane. Y'all y'all have seen Die Hard a million we times. We had a great episode on it. Yeah, and yeah, I don't even have to talk about it that much. It's the thing. You know the thing. You know it's the di- thing. It's Die Hard. It's Die Hard. It's that good. <laughs> That's the tagline for the movie. Die Hard. It's that good. <laughs> <laughs> die Harder. <laughs> All right, next up at number 15, top 15. Here we go. Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. This is the best Star Wars movie, and in my opinion, I just think that Empire is just... It's the best one. Yeah. yeah. It's the it's the apex mountain of Star Wars. It's the the top of the mountain, Star Wars. <laughs> it's the peak. So it's the, so it's if, the peak of, if of you're, Star Wars. If you go on a mountain, if you hike a mountain, sure. and you stand on the very tip yeah. at the highest point, that's this movie. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a perfect place to watch it, too. It sounds like a terrible place to watch it. It'd be freezing. It depends on the mountain. You would not have... How are you going to watch it? You don't got any electricity up there. I have a phone. You know... Okay. You're going to watch a movie on your phone on the top of a mountain? How else am I going to watch a movie on a mountain? I don't know. Anyways, Empire Strikes Back is perfect. It's a perfect movie from start to finish. It's incredible. Wonderful. I mean, Irvin Kirshner... Fucking directed his ass off. Cinematography's great. It's the it still is, I think, the best looking Star Wars movie. Oh, me too. I agree. I, I, I think it's still just phenomenal to look at visually. Yeah. I like to just look at the DVD. Just looking at it, man. <laughs> just looking at that movie. <laughs> You're like, you just stare at it like, yeah, it's a fucking one of the movie. best movies to look, look at, at. Look at that fucking thing. Aesthetically pleasing to the <laughs> eyes. Oh my god. You know what else is a perfect movie? What, man? At number 14 on our list, we have The Terminator. Nice. So unique. Fucking, can you imagine <laughs> seeing this movie in theaters the year it came out? Back in, wait, hold on, what year is this? 1981? Holy crap, that'd be, 1984. 84. But to, to see a movie like this in 1984 must have been mind-blowing. Same thing with like Star Wars and stuff like that too, because it's so unique, so original. Is it unique? Arnold Schwarzenegger is perfect as The Terminator because... You know, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Didn't have to do much acting in this one. Just looks straight and dark and evil. But, I mean, when it comes to science fiction, which is my favorite genre, this is one of the best of all time. And, and Terminator is such a crazy idea. So many great concepts in it. We have time travel. We have uh, humans versus technology, man versus machine, which is always great. But also, the filmmaking is just excellent, man. Excellent, excellent filmmaking, as well as the mythos created by, uh, by James Cameron, with Kyle Reese becomes one of the most iconic heroes in cinema, especially in the genre and science fiction and horror. In the twist of him being John's dad. Yeah, everyone knows yeah. John Connor. Everyone knows Kyle Reese. Everyone knows Sarah Connor. It's just a great Sarah franchise. Connor. But this movie is so damn good. And it's a movie where phone books play a major role. They do. They sure do. Phone books and telephone booths. Absolutely. Terminator would be lost without a phone book in this movie. Yeah, he just, <laughs> there'd be no way to walk around Los Angeles. <laughs> He just goes to people. Do you know Sarah Connor? Do you know Sarah Connor? Do you know Sarah Connor? Twenty years later, I have not found Sarah Connor. Take him forever to find Sarah Connor. (laughs) Fucking phone books, man. All right, next up at number thirteen, we have Amadeus, which we mentioned earlier, uh, winner of eight Oscars, and it is a fictional 
depiction of um, Wolfgang Amadeus's life told from the perspective of his rival, uh, a rival composer who was jealous and envious of Mozart's insurmountable natural God-given talent of uh, being the, one of the greatest musicians and writers in, ever to exist. Uh, it's really incredible filmmaking, uh, really stunning cinematography. Wolfgang Peterson made this movie. Great performances. Uh, this Ephraim Abraham plays the rival. He won an Oscar for this role. He's got such a great commanding voice. I mean, that guy, incredible. You've seen him in a lot of Wes Anderson movies He lately. looks like he has a great voice, yeah, too. Yeah, he right. Just he just, like, that guy looks like he sounds great. Really, just a remarkable film. Tonally, it's very uh, in a league of its own with its comedy and the high art slash costume drama. Uh, and I love, I just love the interpretation of Wolfgang um, Amadeus Mozart. Mozart, we grow up knowing, is one of the greatest composers of all time of classical music. But this film has a fun twist on him of being like, what if you contrast his personality with the art he created? And so uh, he's immature, he's vulgar, he's uh, a sex addict, he's a drug user, he's uh, flamboyant, he's very loud, he's childish. And it's, it's just a great interpretation of the character. And I, I love, love, love Amadeus. Moving on to number 12. We're cruising through these because everyone's seen all of these movies a lot, I'm sure. Except for a couple of them coming up. We have Steven Spielberg's E.T., the extraterrestrial. Hell yet. Hell yet. Hell yet. He's so extra. One of the best alien movies of all time, and I love it because it's not an alien invasion movie. It's not really a horror movie. It's scary. I was scared of it when I was a kid. But, man, when we saw this at a re-release last year in IMAX, fuck yes. One of the best movie experiences I've ever had in my entire life. That I swear ending, to God. The ending, man. Oh, my God. The last 20 minutes of this movie, the bike chase. I got. I was crying tears of joy dun, during the bike chase. Dun, 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 I freaking love E.T. And... <laughs> If you ever get a chance to see this in, in theaters on a re-release or something like that, I can't recommend it enough. But it, it made me connect with it even more. And I always loved this movie when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the imagery and the things like the Reese's Pieces and uh, the the finger touching to heal Elliot, just things like that. Just when you think of cinema and American movies, yeah. every time you – if you ever see a compilation of film – E.T.'s going to be in there. Riding no over what. the silhouette. One of the best shots yeah, ever. The moon. Maybe my yeah. favorite shot ever in cinema is the is, moon, is the moon shot. Yeah. The silhouette of the kids flying in the air after the chase, after the excellent chase with E.T. lifting up in the air. It's so fucking incredible. I love E.T. so much. I love it too, man. It's a perfect movie. It is. It's one of his best. At number 11, we have an Ingmar Bergman film. He made most of his uh, masterpieces in the 60s and 70s. Uh, however, he did make, I think, his magnum opus and his greatest film in the 80s with Fanny and Alexander, a uh, personal favorite of mine. And it's just a stunning uh, amalgamation of the master's uh, filmmaking prowess. And uh, he crafted a wonderful story. It's a tragedy. It's a comedy. It's about love. It's about family. It's about uh, suffering. It's so many incredible themes permeating throughout this story. Uh, massive in scale and scope, yet intimate in its in its approach. Um, it's just one of the best productions I've ever seen. Its production design and cinematography are astounding, and it's just really nothing like it in this world. There's two versions. There's a three-hour version, and then there's the, the five-and-a-half-hour version. Um, 
the five and a half hour version is daunting. Definitely check out the three hour film. It's still an amazing piece of work, and I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen in my life, and it's uh, it's just unbelievable. I love it. Another beautiful film, and one of the best films about filmmaking, and one of the best Italian films, Cinema Paradiso, which came out in nineteen eighty eight. It's about this filmmaker who recalls his past of uh, being a young boy and attend. Falling in love with cinema while befriending a local cinema employee projectionist and really just learning about film and cinema. It's emotional. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's a fucking 8.5 on IMDb. Damn. Number 49 on the all-time user rating list. It's just it's just a perfect film. And like when you think of cinema, Cinema Paradiso is just a legendary movie. And Ennio Morricone's score. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's a really, really beautiful film. It's my favorite film that celebrates film. It's yeah. my favorite. Yeah. It's sort of a if if you love movies about filmmaking, if you like yeah. if you love Babylon recently or, or other movies about filmmaking, Fablemans, yeah, yeah. This, this is up there. There's been a lot of them lately yeah. about like the celebration of film, yeah. but I think that uh, this is just the best version of it, the best kind of story about that. It's just beautiful, beautiful film. Next up, we have another war film, and our first and only Stanley Kubrick film on this. Uh, our first film from Stanley Kubrick on this film. Scratch that previous statement. We have Full Metal Jacket. Uh, one of a kind in the war genre. He made Paths of Glory, and then he also made Full Metal Jacket. Like he 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 made two war movies that you could argue each of them is the greatest war movie of all time. That's how fucking great of a director he was. And uh, Full Metal Jacket is unique. It's massive. It's so cool how he shot this using so much Steadicam. These real sets. Uh, the pyrotechnics are amazing. Uh, the effects of war. One of my favorite sequences, one of my favorite images ever depicted on film, though, is the shaving of the boys' heads when they're uh, entering infantry training. And they all, he does just the same a static shot that doesn't change, and it just cuts to each person getting their heads shaved. And you can see them, the in a way, the whole theme of the film is the humanity being stripped away from the men, and that's the first instance of, of them. They're being erased, they're being they're turned into a clean slate to be molded. And my God, it's just so powerful. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is great in this movie, and it's it's a shocking film. It's very powerful, um, and it's just an unbelievable achievement of cinema, in my opinion. Another unbelievable achievement in cinema is Akira Kurosawa's *Ran*, which came out in 1985, which takes place in medieval Japan. It's also an adaptation of Shakespeare's *King Lear*. Yes. It's about a medieval Japanese warlord who retires and gives up his power to his three sons. However, they turn on each other and him mm-hmm. because of the corruption of power. Yeah, it's it's really it's a tragedy. And um it's massive. And the sequences, there's three major battle sequences, and they're all stunning to behold. The sets, the cinematography, the costuming, the amount of extras, it's just absolutely phenomenal. But it all comes down to the tragedy within, and it's just a man who thought he was doing the right thing and leaving, and how he decided to leave his empire to his children. And it was the tragedy of them not only turning on each other, but turning on him. And that's, that's the, the man, he just shrinks into disillusionment and despair. And you see that the weight on him, and it's just a horrible tragedy. And it's just one of the most astounding, astounding pieces of filmmaking ever. It's so monumentally huge and incredible, incredible film. 
And for a Kurosawa film, embracement of the coloring, the the blues, yeah. the reds, the yellows, the fire. It's an unbelievable movie. All right, next up we have at number seven, another Jim Cameron movie. One of the greatest sequels of all time, Aliens. This is fucking so good, man. It's so goddamn good. Oh, my God. Uh, Aliens extended upon Ridley Scott's masterpiece, Alien, uh, in so many great ways, moving, leaning into the action genre, uh, and still embracing the horror, giving Sigourney Weaver another great role and compounding on what she did in the previous film. I love the military aspect of it. I love the political aspect of it. And they did an amazing job with the set design, with the practical filmmaking, with the xenomorphs. And it's an instance, it's an example of, yes, there's way more xenomorphs, but it didn't feel like they were cheapening the film at all by doing more. It wasn't excessive and for excessive sake. It really made it even more insurmountably huge of a conflict for them. Have you ever seen the letterbox contrast? This is a meme. This person watched Alien and Aliens. And they gave Alien like one star and they gave Aliens five stars. And in the Alien review, it said, man, I wish there was more than just one Alien. And then the, in the Aliens review, it was like, this is fucking awesome. It's lit. <laughs> <laughs> they must not like Jaws. Definitely not. Let's move on to number six on our list. This little film came out in 1981. <laughs> you know, directed by Steven Spielberg. Raiders of the Lost Ark, the namesake of our show. Indiana Jones' big come-out party in cinema. <laughs> One of the best characters ever. One of the best movies ever. I fucking love Raiders of the Lost Ark so much. There's so many things I could say about it. But it just takes too long. <laughs> it just takes way too long. It's a perfect <laughs> movie. Time. If only you had a podcast. The greatest adventure movie in the history of cinema. I agree. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Some of the greatest filmmaking ever, taking classical filmmaking, but also revamping it. So many great stunts, so many great stunt set pieces, traversing the world. Harrison Ford is a golden god. It's funny. It's campy. It's amazing. He's fighting Nazis, racing after the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, I fucking love Raiders of the Lost Ark, man. It's just so. It's a special movie to me. That was much better than the Last Crusade synopsis. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... Trying to keep it together. I'm fucking exhausted. You're doing great, like, man. I'm, I'm very tired right now. All right, we're in the top five now. Uh, this is a top list to make. Tough the list. Jet to make. lag is coming yeah. in hard right now. At number five, we have Robert Zemeckis's Back to the Future, which is another one of the greatest action adventure films of all time. And Marty McFly, Doc. Uh, I love the sci-fi. The visual effects are astounding. It's a really great time travel film. A really great grandfather paradox film, and it is a perfect film. Um, from start to finish, it's iconic for so many reasons. In one of my favorite episodes is actually the episode we did on it. Yeah, I had a it was, blast. Yeah, I had a wonderful. It was a wonderful. It was chat. a really good experience. Yeah, it was great. It was lovely. Uh, Back to the Future, all time, man, all time. You know what else is all time? <laughs> Number four on our list, The Thing. Fuck yes. Nineteen eighty-two, John Carpenter. You didn't think we forgot about it, did you? Yeah, starring Kurt Russell, the hair god, the beard god, <laughs> just the god god, Kurt Russell. I actually, uh, on production for the movie this past month, 
we had a, a night where we watched a movie and we watched a thing. I showed it, and a lot of people had never seen it before. Really? Yeah, they just loved it did so they like, much. Did everyone like it? Yeah, yeah. They, it was a small TV we had to watch it on, but it was oh, still yeah. great. People really enjoyed it. But the thing, we did an episode on it not that long ago, right? It was a couple months ago. Yeah, it was like. another wonderful experience. Another great experience because this is an all-time horror movie. It's fucking one of the best remakes ever, for sure. And John, Car- John Carpenter is a genius. He's, he might be the best horror director of all time. He's up there. Scorsese loves it. Yeah, the thing. He did an interview recently. And he was talking about the thing, and he was gushing about it. Yeah, I gush about it every time I talk about it. Too. I was so happy to show people. So maybe I showed maybe, maybe fifteen people it, and I think like wow. at least half of them had never seen it before. That's awesome. And they really loved it. They really enjoyed it. And it's it's. The was thing. it your choice? Yeah, I was You're, like, someone brought up like the thing. I'm like, who here hasn't seen the thing? A lot of people. Are like, oh, we're watching the fucking thing tonight. <laughs> I love it. So you're trying to figure out what to watch. That's great. But it's a perfect movie. It's a perfect horror movie, and you all know how much we it's, love it. It's one of the greatest films ever made, yeah, without just, a doubt. Just check out our recent episode. Right? Abs- it's it, absolutely one. Of, it's an amazing, amazing movie. All right, next up at number three, we have another Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. One of the greatest horror films of all time. It's one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, we've done. A ton of content on the Shining. We did another. We did a great episode on the Shining. Another, I mean, great experience. It was a really <laughs> wonderful, wonderful experience to talk to you about the Shining. I mean, Jack Nicholson, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Stephen King, Shelley Duvall, Shelley Duvall. You know, so many great moments and uh, the iconography of the film. There's so many elements to it that you're seared into your mind. Whether it be the na- the maze, whether it be uh, the axe. Uh, whether it be the hotel itself, the interior, the typewriter, uh, Stanley Kubrick understood the power of film in creating, you know, images that can sear into a, an audience's mind. And I mean, I can't think of any fil- many films that like there are multiple visual elements. And I'm not talking about like a shot. I'm talking about like object, where it's like you associate that object with just like horror. And this movie is just a wonderful, wonderful piece of horror and mysteries yeah, and still mysteries. being studied. Still analyzed and still appreciated for all the secrets that Stanley Kubrick put in there. Because he's sprinkled. Love that guy. Next up, we are on the final two, everybody. At number two on the 80 best movies from the 1980s, we have Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull starring Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. De Niro playing Jake LaMotta, the boxer, real-life boxer. This movie is an epic it spans a couple decades of Jake LaMotta's life as world champion in his weight class, as well as the relationships he had with his brother, his wife, the abuse he instilled on both of them, and then his massive rise to his intense fall to just the depths of oneself that leads him to just basically being a performer and a wannabe stand-up comedian in clubs, basically just doing nothing really and just... How high, how high he rose and how fall, how much he fell. It's an incredibly well-made movie. Some of the most unique sports sequences you ever see. Some of the most unique boxing sequences you ever see. The cinematography is exceptional. Editing too feels like a dream while you're watching it. Uh, I love the I love the combat in the in the fighting and the way that Scorsese filmed it. The slow mo, the smoke, the solo actor inside of a, a boxing ring with no one around it. Really, just kind of makes it feel ethereal. It's There's just all dolly zooms. Yeah, it's just a, an incredible piece of filmmaking. And just yeah. Martin Scorsese just fucking is the best ever, man. Uh, uh, Seth posted on Twitter, like there was a TikTok comment on one of his videos talking about Scorsese. And it got like so many likes that the guy, the comment said, you know, 
I like I love Scorsese, but his movies are always too gangstery for me. That's why uh, Nolan's better, because Nolan has a more varied varied filmography. It's the stupidest thing. And I've ever Seth, heard in my Seth life. like said the same thing. Like this, he, I think Seth said that like I'm convinced that people who say this have only seen like two Martin Scorsese films. They've probably only seen Goodfellas and Taxi Driver. Yeah, and The Departed. Yeah, it's just because um, the guy did. He's done every genre from boxing to period piece to pool. He's never done sci-fi. Sure, he's never done sci-fi. He's never done sci-fi. Um, I wonder why, because he loves sci-fi. I wonder why he's never done it. Anyways, he's. I can't think of a filmmaker who actually has a more varied filmography as Scorsese. That's the irony. Well, varied. Kubrick's up there. Ridley's up there. He's never done a like a full-on war movie before. He's never done a war movie, no. Yeah, yeah he's never. He's never. Never. Gangs in New York's a little war movie. It's got some war in it. Yeah, but I mean, it's a gang. Not a war. It's war a movie. gang movie. Yeah, yeah. It's not a gangster movie. It's a gang movie. Yeah. Difference. Difference. There gangsters is. Gangsters are not gangs. And gangs are not gangsters. Wow. Words of they wisdom. Can be. They can be. All right. Um, take it away. Take it away. Uh, take it away with the the number one film of the 1980s, Anthony. So you put this on the list, and then when I looked at the list, I was like, you know what? I can't say no to this, yeah. man. I agree. The our choice for the best movie from the 1980s is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Blade Runner redefined cinema in so many ways. First of all, it redefined the science fiction genre. It brought about an entire new aesthetic in terms of production design, in terms of sci-fi and future stories being gritty and more relative to the world we know. Also, visually, uh, the combination of matte paintings, visual effects, practical effects, and the cinematography uh, was really groundbreaking. Still to this day, a lot of it holds up. And also, combining a, a story, a science fiction film set in the future with film noir. Um, just an unbelievable visual feast of, of filmmaking with a great screenplay. Like a really, really great screenplay about big ideas. Uh, tackled with nuance and attentiveness. Led by, obviously, Harrison Ford as Deckard. Uh, but also, the entire cast is phenomenal. Rutger Hauer, I think, is one of the more interesting antagonists ever put on screen. But the it's really, uh, really Scott's knack for visual filmmaking is mostly second to none. There's a reason why he made some of the greatest films of all time. He's just had it. He knows how to shoot. He knows what to do. You see shots in this movie, and they... they uh, what's funny is when people hate on Ridley Scott, it's, they don't understand. Ridley Scott is probably their favorite director's favorite director. He's like Denis Villeneuve's favorite director. Denis Villeneuve has referenced Ridley Scott in all of his movies in various ways. His impact on filmmaking is insurmountable, especially large-scale filmmaking and especially genre filmmaking in horror and science fiction. Um, he's really unbelievable as a filmmaker. He's, you guys know we love him. He's one of our favorites. But Blade Runner, the fact that he did Alien and then Blade Runner is just unbelievable. Then. But then to do Gladiator and a bunch of other great movies, it's just insane what this guy's accomplished. But Blade Runner is a special piece of cinema, and it really does hold up as the greatest, I think, of the 1980s. And Harrison Ford in the 1980s, oh my god. Yeah, he's all over this list. He's all over the list. It's crazy. What a decade. Well, that wraps our 80 best movies 
of the 1980s. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Please become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast. Get tickets to our live show in Boston on April 18th. We're coming to the dirty water, baby. We're coming. <laughs> coming, We're coming to B-Town. We're coming to B-Town. We're coming to the to the harbor. We're going to throw tea off a boat, man. <laughs> April 18th, you can get tickets to our live show on our website, Raiders of Lost Podcast. We have a Instagram.com. We have an Inst- Instagram highlight on our Instagram page. It's just right there. Links are in there. Um, again, get tickets April 18th in Boston live. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Darian, Tyler McFly, Mark Nikaj. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.